This is VOCM Open Line. Call 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626. The views and opinions of this program are not necessarily those of this station. The biggest conversation in Newfoundland and Labrador starts now. Here's VOCM Open Line host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Wednesday, January the 24th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, David Williams. He's producing the program, so we'll be speaking with David when you pick up the phone to give us a shout in the queue and on the air. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, one 888 590-VOCM, which is 86-26, and obviously a bitterly cold morning, frigid out there in St. John's and surrounding area. And of course, we've seen this Arctic blast or cold snap virtually throughout the entirety of the province, and it is wicked. You know, we heard Jerry Lynn Mackey talk about the potential for frostbite in seconds or minutes flat, uh, the recommendation to keep your pets indoors, all those types of things, but it is brutal out there. And when it's this cold, and when the cold snap hits the real populated areas of the province on the northeast Avalon in particular, you see that demand for power shoot through the roof. I think it peaked out this morning, the last time I checked anyway at Newfoundland uh, Labrador Hydro, 1,969 megawatts of demand. Now, there have been some outages, but that is a record. The record prior to this was last February, about 1,800 megawatts, so the demand is absolutely huge today. So hopefully we can keep the lights and the heat. Um, But 1,969 megawatts of demand this morning. Then they talk about, you know, warming rooms or warming shelters. And the city has opened up Safe Haven on uh, uh, number 10 St. Clair Avenue. The gathering place is open. They've been at capacity for quite a while now, but it's not even just for people who are homeless. And you can just imagine what it must be like to be actually literally homeless during these types of weather experiences. But for folks who even have their own place to live, maybe the inability to afford to turn up the heat to where they need to actually stay warm today, maybe just going to the gathering place for a warm-up. And you know, you'll see people do exactly that. With the bills piling up the way they are for so many people in the province and the country, things like going to the grocery store or going to the mall or going to the gathering place or going to Safe Haven is maybe not just because you have nowhere else to go, it's because you don't have anywhere to go that's warm. So they also talk about, you know, the emergency shelters are available and they'll give out the emergency shelter line so this of course operated by the newfoundland labrador housing corporation the number is 1-833-724-2444 but the problem is so many people who actually need to avail of an emergency shelter like this maybe don't have a phone maybe don't have the ability to sit by a phone to get a return call because that's the process you call they call you back then they try to sort you out but the cold is real and there's lots of tangents to take from it this morning if you were so inclined. All right, a couple of quick, easy ones before we get into the big ones. History last night at the TD Center, which is formerly the Boston Garden. It's a real shame that some of those notable and the names that had the gravitas, you know, the Montreal Forms are the Bell Center. The Boston Garden is the TD Garden. But Abby Newhook and her Boston College Eagles played in that building for the very first time in a beanpot game against Harvard, ended up in a 2-2 draw. Last one on the sports notes before we get to the big ones. On this date, 1962, Jackie Robinson, the first black man elected to baseball's Hall of Fame. Bob Feller was also elected in that Hall of Fame class. Okay, here we go. This is the big story. So when the federal government, the prime minister, invoked the Emergencies Act in early 2022, it came with plenty of consternation, pushback, and international media coverage. It triggered an automatic public inquiry that was led by Commissioner Paul Rulo. 
they came up with the conclusion that the very high threshold needed to invoke the Emergencies Act, citing a failure in policy and federalism, so they gave it a bit of an approval. Not so fast. For the third consecutive time, the federal government, the federal liberals, have lost in court. The first one was about federal government overreach regarding uh, energy uh, issues and provincial jurisdiction and authority. Then, of course, it was the whole plastic ban and the labeling of plastic as toxic that was overturned in the courts. And now, under the ruling of federal court justice Richard Mosley, this is talking about the Emergencies Act. They say it was unreasonable and infringed on protesters' charter rights. He goes on to say, it reflected an unacceptable breakdown of public order, that's the protest itself, but the invocation of the Emergencies Act does not bear the hallmarks of reasonableness, justification, transparency, and intelligibility. Okay, he goes on. He says, I conclude that there was no national emergency justifying the invocation of the Emergencies Act, and the decision to do so was therefore unreasonable and ultra-vires. Now, of course, that's just simply Latin terms saying the actions went beyond the scope of the law. So the case was brought forward by two people who had their bank accounts frozen, the Canadian Civil Liberties Association and the Canadian Constitution Foundation. So the act gave them pretty extraordinary uh, power. So gave them the power to remove and arrest protesters, gave the government the power to freeze the finances of those to the protest. It also allowed them the ability to commandeer tow trucks to remove protesters' vehicles from the streets. That one was interesting because the tow truck companies refused. Even requests coming from the Ontario Police Department or the Capitol Police and the RCMP and or the government and the tow truck drivers would not do it. So, under the Emergencies Act, a national emergency only exists if the situation, quote, cannot be effectively dealt with under any other law of Canada. And goes on to say that any threat that arises to the security of Canada that are so as to be declared a national emergency. When we talk about those definitions, the Act refers directly to the Canadian Security Intelligence Service's definition of such threats, which includes serious violence against persons or property, espionage, foreign interference, and or the intent to overthrow the government by violence. Of course, it wasn't just in Ottawa. It was the issue at the border in Alberta at Coots. That was pretty serious. Four men are still awaiting trial there. They found like some 36,000 rounds of ammunition, a couple of pipe bombs. The conspiracy to murder RCMP officers is the alleged uh, issue there. But of course, that was dealt with by police prior to the invocation of the Emergencies Act. So it really isn't part and parcel with it, even though it's really quite troubling. So here's more coming from the justice, who was actually a liberal appointed uh, justice to the bench, appointed by Cretchen, I believe. I agree with the government that the objective was pressing and substantial, and that there was rational connection between freezing the accounts and the objective to fund the blockades however the measures were not minimally impairing he goes on to say given the economic orders infringed on protest freedom of expression as they were overbroad in their application to persons who wished to protest but were not engaged in activities likely to lead to the breach of the peace he concluded uh, that the economic orders violated the per- protesters' charter rights by permitting unreasonable search and seizure of the financial information of designated persons and the freezing of their banking and credit cards. The two fellows, who, the two people who were part of this lawsuit, say that they they argued that their rights under the Canadian Bill of Rights were violated, but mostly on that front disagreed. Okay. The big question is, where to from here? Now, the government says they will appeal, and eventually this is going to end up in the hands of the justices sitting on the bench at the Supreme Court of Canada. But people will ask, you know, the obvious questions here. With ethic breaches, these losses in the courts, who gets held accountable and what does that look like? Is it sanctions? There's going to be a big wave of lawsuits. You know that for sure. Well, I guess we'll have to wait and see what the Supreme Court says. But based on this federal court ruling, there are absolutely big looming questions. 
what does the outcome look like? What does accountability look like? What do the lawsuits look like? The taxpayers will inevitably be on the hook. This is a vindication for many people in the country who were involved with or supportive of the protest in Ottawa. And we can take it on from whatever angle you, you see fit. But this is a big ruling, and this is a big deal. So I don't know how quickly the Supreme Court will take it on. The government is very quick to say they will appeal, because obviously they will. They're appealing even the plastic ban decision that came forward in the courts. So, and on that front, you know, interestingly, and I don't think surprisingly, Liberal Member of Parliament for Avalon, Ken McDonald, there's a story in the media today where he's saying, you know, every leader and every party, every government has a best before date. And his estimation is that his party, and in particular, Prime Minister Trudeau, has arrived at that best before date. He's actually calling for a leadership review. So we'll see what all of that means. I wonder also what this ruling means, even though Jagmeet Singh, the leader of the federal NDP, what they call reluctantly supported the invocation of the Mercies Act. He supported it. That's it. What does this ruling mean for the NDP's continued agreement or arrangement in their supply and confidence? They've got some of the things they've been looking for, like the National Dental Plan. So will this see the federal NDP gives second thought, because their caucus is meeting in Edmonton, Alberta at this very moment, or will they try to hold out to go further down the road to get what is the last big ticket item on their wants or needs or their Christmas list, and that's universal pharmacare. This has been bandied about for a very, very long time, and you know it comes with an enormous price tag, although it also comes with long-term savings. Not my numbers, the Parliamentary Budget Office. So this work was done by Yves Giroux. He says, under the single-payer universal drug plan, it would cost the federal and provincial governments $11.2 billion in the first year and $13.4 billion in five years. Also went down to the report to say that they provide an estimate of the cost of pharmacare between 2024, 25, and 27 and 28. This follows up with all the work that's been done over the course of decades. Every report that's ever come forward, and this is not a lest we have to do it type of comment, but every time there's been a committee struck to review the implications, the cost, and or potential savings with universal pharmacare, give it a thumbs up. So you wonder whether or not that would be something important enough to the NDP, or does this ruling give them reason for further pause? A couple of more details inside of this. Now, this is excluding hospital drugs. The PBS, PBO says total prescription drug spending was $36.6 billion in 21 and 22. That was a 20% increase from 25 and 16. Of that amount, some 46% was covered by governments, 40% by private insurers, and 14% was paid out of pocket. Total spending on prescription drugs under a single-payer universal pharmacare plan is expected to be $33.2 billion in 24-25 and rising to $38.9 billion in 27-28. They go on, though, to say that there's economy-wide savings. Despite the prediction that the use of prescription drugs would rise by 13.5%, they estimate there will indeed be savings. The PBO says cost savings on drug expenditures of $1.4 billion in 24-25, and that figure would increase to $2.2 billion by 27-28. So you wonder, will that be enough for the Liberals to remain in that uh, supply and confidence agreement with the federal NDP, or has that NDP caucus been shook by this particular court ruling? Your comments, your thoughts are most welcome. So, you know, I do indeed lean on the, uh, the PBO, the Parliamentary Budget Office, for a variety of things because it is pretty much an independent arm. They are not all about just approving government spend. They do a pretty careful, comprehensive methodology of coming up with real numbers for us to consider, and this one's weird. 
Okay. So they were asked, that office was asked to look at the implications of a conservative bill that was put forward by a, a Tory MP named Alex Ruff back in October. It's Bill C-358. It was calling for the government to remove GST from Ottawa's pricing plan, carbon pricing plan. The PBO says it would lead to a billion dollars in lost tax revenue. All right, but sort of a strange way to put it. What it really does mean is if the GST was scraped off of carbon pricing, and many people think GST should not be applied to necessities of life, like heating your own home, and of course the implication of a tax on a tax, as people rightfully refer to, but it might be a billion dollars in lost tax, tax revenue, but given the fact that me and you are the economy, a billion, what that means to me is that there's an additional billion dollars in the hands and the pockets of Canadian taxpayers. So the PBO is sort of a strange way to put that one, but there we go. All right, how are we doing on the phone there, David? We'll get through a couple of quick ones before we get to you. You've got to wonder what goes on sometimes. So there have been people clamoring for ride-sharing services to be approved and brought to the province. And of course, notably, that would be the Uber and the Lyft of the world. Then the, the province went ahead and granted a license for a ride-sharing outfit to a company called Red Sea Riding. They were going to be operating as Cabby, K-A-B-B-Y. So I don't know what sort of due diligence is uh, undertaken to look at who these applicants are and who their 10 drivers would be. But apparently, and I can't remember the guy's name, but a, a fellow with the same name is on the court docket facing extremely serious charges. This guy's the CEO. Facing charges of assault, sexual assault, sexual interference, invitation of sexual touching, making explicit material available to a child under 16, and exposing his genitals. When you have someone who's applying to be dealing directly with the general public, you would think that the very first thing is not necessarily about their business model or how they're going to recruit or retain and vet drivers, but the person at the helm themselves. Isn't that where you start when you talk about trying to deal with the public? I mean, if I want to coach minor soccer, I have to get a criminal background check. But they didn't start with that when it came to putting cars on the road to drive people wherever they're going. And there would be plenty of vulnerable people who would be sitting in the back seats of these particular cabs. So the license has now been suspended until further notice. Bit of a self-inflicted wound on that front for the government, but you want to take it on. We can do exactly that. Oh, and there was a call yesterday talking about the issue of uh, seasonal insurance on their vehicle. For the past 10 years, the caller said he was able to remove liability and collision insurance from his vehicle, keep fire and theft, his summer car remains in the garage while he drives his winter rig. So we've been going back and forth with the Department of Motor Vehicle. In December 2022, the province launches new insurance validation program. This comes directly from the department. It says, to confirm insurance coverage during the vehicle renewal process, my gov will automatically check the IVP database using your vehicle information number, your VIN number. When an insurance policy cannot be confirmed, MyGovNL will not allow the vehicle registration to be renewed. To avoid a vehicle registration suspension during the off-season, a seasonal declaration can be completed, which is also available on the previous mentioned website. So there's a link there. If you want to send me an email, I will send you that link. But that should hopefully alleviate some of that particular confusion. All right. Where did I have this one? Okay. A couple of healthcare comments before we move on. 
So we continually hear the two big R words, right? The recruitment and the retention. And as I've mentioned, whether it be in the world of healthcare or in daycare, it's not just about the big high-level numbers of how many people have been brought into the fold. It's all about the net gain or net loss. So the NDP put forward an access to information request. They asked for a list of all the doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and medical technicians who have left NL Health Services in the past two years, and a list of vacancies in all medical-related job titles over the same period. According to the NDP, and I think we're anticipating a call from an NDP here today, the number of healthcare work vacancies across the province's four health zones is 1,905. Some of the positions have been vacant for almost three years, 154 weeks. So this didn't happen overnight. Successive governments have not paid enough attention to this, and yes, I know it's a global issue, and yes, I know it's a provincial bidding war to bring in healthcare professionals, but again, this took years to be as, I'll call it, as bad as it currently is. So, according to the Access to Information request, 1,275 of those vacancies are in the Eastern Zone. Some of those, 729 are registered nurses, 115 doctors, and that excludes those working in private practice or family doctors with their own practices, some of which have left the system the last two years. The request also goes on to point out 1,009 workers have resigned over the same period in just the Eastern Zone alone. So when we hear that, you know, from Come Home Year initiatives, some 50 doctors came to the province and some 400 nurses from uh, uh, India have been recruited. Not all are working at this moment in time. They'll point to the fact that the fourth radiation unit over at the H. Bliss Murphy Center has now been reopened, uh, which is obviously good news. But it does point to the issue where, you know, it, I would think, in a political calculation, it's still in government's best interest to be very open and transparent about this stuff. So when we hear updates, I think the first question, if I ever was in a media scrum, of course, I don't go to those things, but is, okay, you recruited 50 doctors, doctors from Come Home Here. What is the net gain? Where are we? Because when some doctors come, some leave, some retire, maybe some move away from a full patient roster, so we need to know exactly what the nets are. And in addition to that, you know, someone made, I think, a really wise comment when we mentioned the fact that there's more doctors working here than ever before, but that is true. But of course, with the age of the population and the potential for more interaction with the healthcare system as you age, sort of does explain uh, why we still find ourselves in this scenario. You know, we don't know what the number is. There's arguments about how many people don't have a uh, family doctor. But those access to information reports paint a little clearer picture about where we are in healthcare. And I wonder what's the role of the feds? Now, I don't want the federal government involved in everything that I do in provincial jurisdiction because they've had their knuckles wrapped in the courts about that. But is there going to be a way to try to have some metrics applied to salaries that could be offered in one province or another? Because, again, if we simply think throwing money at it is going to solve it, then I think we're kidding ourselves. We spend almost $4 billion on health care in this province. Is it improving? I don't think so. I don't know how much worse it's getting, but I don't think it's improving commensurate with the money spent. So if we simply have the richest provinces able to hire all the healthcare professionals they want because of their deep pockets, that's not good for federalism. That's not good for confederation. That's not good for the country. So I wonder what the federal could and should be. Okay, last one, last two. 
So uh, 52 nominations for the East Coast Music Awards for people coming from this province. Absolutely fantastic. So notably, Tim Baker, who's a savant. I mean, singer, songwriter, Baker, he's extraordinary. He's got six nominations, including Album of the Year, Song of the Year, the We Stand on Guard Again, the Benefit Concert, helping those impacted by post-tropical storm or Hurricane Fiona back in 2022, nominated for Event of the Year. This is interesting. This is from a Music NL CEO, Rhonda Tolklane. Obviously, we punch above our weight. We all know that. Even when we look at our membership and the growth we have, we have the largest music industry association in Atlantic Canada and the second largest in the country, just behind BC. The ECMAs are in Charlottetown, PEI, in May. Congratulations to all who got a nod. Last one. Let's go to Bird Cove on the Great Northern Peninsula. I want to say good morning and happy birthday to Gladys Keynes. So her birthday today, hopefully she has a tremendous day. Birthday wishes coming from her sister Josie, who apparently played basketball with my wife, my sister, which is pretty cool. So Gladys, thanks for tuning into the program. Hopefully you have a tremendous day, even though it's really cold where you live in Bird Cove today. Happy birthday to you. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line followers there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. We're going to kick it off with Craig Dyer. He's the Cup W president of the St. John's Local. We've been talking about the fact that Canada Post finds itself at a real crossroads. Selling off some IT and logistics arms of Canada Post, the Crown Corporation, that does not impact the 60,000 members represented by Cup W, but it does speak to what does the future look like for Canada Post. And then we're going to talk about some daycare amendments being brought forward by the City of St. John's with Councillor at Large, Maggie Burton. And then we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Just before we get to the call, so from a listener, obviously supportive of the federal government, so be it. You know, to paint a fulsome picture of what the ruling from Judge Bradley Moss said yesterday, or mostly said yesterday. So here, here's one of the quotes, and this is fair because this is actually in the report or the ruling. Had I been at the table, I may have agreed that it was necessary to invoke, and I acknowledge that in conducting judicial review, I'm revisiting that time with the benefit of hindsight and a more extensive record of the facts and the law that which was used before the GIC. That doesn't give the government a free pass here. It's just an acknowledgement by the federal court judge. Okay, let's keep going. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the president of the St. John's local of W. That's Craig Dyer. Good morning, Craig. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Welcome to the show. A uh, long time since we've spoken. It has been a long time. Now, it's no surprise to anybody, it's certainly not you and your members, that the future for Canada Post is not as bright as it maybe once was. I mean, they're losing lots of money, half a billion dollars in 2022, and I remember speaking with you in the past that some of those losses can be chalked up to maybe some mismanagement versus simply a loss of business. And selling off the IT and logistics departments, albeit it doesn't impact your 60,000 members, but it does speak to the future. What's the conversation look like on the shop floor? Uh, actually, we were just made aware there was a shop talk yesterday where the employer talks to the workers and makes us aware of this. But, you know, um, I, I really don't think that the future is bleak. Uh, but the fact is, once again, the corporation's got to listen. Um, the IT department, uh, we are the biggest deliverer of parcels mail across the country. We hit 16 million points of call every day. So, you know, they need to manage that process better. But I, I just want to identify some of the losses, and I'll just bring it to a local level. We're right now in the middle of a major reorganization for our letter carriers, our RSMCs in St. John's. So we're sitting at the table, and there's a small function. And I actually did the calculations. So one day something happened. Uh, the corporation wouldn't listen to us. We put forth a proposal that would create two hours' work and save the corporation a fair amount of money. So this particular day, uh, they didn't want to listen to us. It cost the corporation $560. Our input was it would have it cost $120 and saved the corporation $440, but they didn't want to listen. 
So that was a win-win situation. Our workers get work, and we save the corporation money. So, you know, that's the management style that we're dealing with in St. John's and across the country. And, of course, Betty, we're getting ready for negotiations for two of our biggest bargaining units. And, of course, the sky is falling. Yeah, it's no coincidence. So you mentioned some 16 million touch points, but, but on that front, I mean, the, the report goes on to say that there is a drop uh, when we talk about delivering letter mail, collapsing by 6 to 8% per year by number of pieces. Is and that is, that is probably factual. I can't confirm it. But that's what we're doing right now in St. John's. We're having a reorganization, taking that into consideration, and there is going to be some job loss. Right. So, you know, they have a mechanism across the country, not only in St. John's, to identify and address those issues. Right. So, you know, every couple of years we have what they call a major reorganization where they come in and do all kinds of samplings. It's an engineering process. We sit down and we develop the new routes. So in this coming March, there is going to be less routes, which means less jobs. But that addresses the volumes. And on the other side, um, we've seen it. Like our parcels are definitely going through the roof, right? Um, it is a very competitive market, but what other business or company or corporation can say that they can deliver to 16 million points of call a day, right? So, you know, it, it's definitely in their hands to manage that, right? For sure. Now, you know, there is some people chiming in here saying that Canada Post is trying to be all things to all people as opposed to the core mandate of simply delivering letters and parcels. But, of course, half of the delivery costs come in what they refer to as the last mile. The U.S. Postal Service has brought forward one of the most major, the biggest logistics companies in the world to help cover some of those last mile incurred costs. But at the same time, Canada Post selling off logistics and IT. Then they're talking about getting uh, full on, both feet under the covers in the world of e-commerce. E-commerce saw 3% three and a half percent growth last year Canada Post no growth in that area does the corporation try to be all things to all people and maybe get a little bit away from the core mandate uh, we are trying to live up to our core mandate and that's well founded in the legislation but as a union member in our union leadership we're trying to create uh, ways to generate revenue to ensure that that service continues we've had many conversations about postal banking they're dabbling with it uh, they're not very good at it so of course that's not a huge success uh, we as members on the street we check in with i.e. your parents my parents just to say hi and make sure that they're all right that's a service being provided around the world and we've talked many times about these electronic charging stations that is the future so we have foresight and there's 700 post offices in newfoundland and labrador who would love to get in their electronic car go down to pass uh, feel comfortable about getting back on the highway because there is electronic post uh, electronic charging station in Trapassi. So, you know, these are all kinds of things. And the other big factor, possibly why they're losing money, is the labor relations, right? They are so poor at managing, and it's costing them a fortune. And I just want to highlight, recently, we just had a member receive $247,000 as a result of poor management, Right. They, they they did something to this gentleman, and that was the arbitrated decision. Uh, it's formal. So somebody in St. John's cost somebody $247,000. We were intervening from the start. And nope, nope, we're not going to do anything. So this is the end result. And it's not only 247000 It costs to replace that person that much money for that period of time. And then you take the legal fees. So we're summing it up as a $700,000 mistake in St. John's. So that's happening across the country. So that's one thing that they can get really good at is their labor relations. They need to listen to the union because we are the ones that are doing the work. We have great members on the floor that have great ideas. 
that want to make sure that we have a future. But that's the problem that we're facing in St. John's and across the country. I know you want to touch on the claim suppression before we run out of time. What's up? Uh, actually, there's been all kinds of stuff happening in St. John's. Uh, as I just said, we're getting ready to negotiate two collective agreements over our biggest bargaining units. But they just did a huge transition in, inside the internal operations. And they're allowed to do it, not a problem. But we have provisions of the collective agreement that talk about a rotation of duties. And what that is is making sure that workers have an opportunity to do all the different functions so they don't get injured. So we've been talking about this since July, sitting at a table, arguing. We've had 11 different demonstrations, and they're not listening, right? So that's something that we're dealing with uh, internally. And externally, there's a huge movement afoot. Our members are being suppressed to file claims about injuries and accidents. And what happened recently was, this is going on two years, uh, and what happened recently last week, the members got tired of it. So they wanted to complain. We have a provision in our collective agreement called 906, the right to complain. So they gathered to tell the employer, senior management, that this isn't good enough. They were disciplining our members for reporting injuries and accidents. That's against the law. That's against the labor code. We've had no success, but uh, it, last Tuesday, three members got together and said, this is enough. They're telling the corporation, uh, senior managerial personnel, this is enough. So what did the management do? Suspend them all. Very harsh uh, five-day suspensions for 30 of our members because our members were picking up for other members because they were being disciplined for reporting a slip and fall, for reporting a, a bump on the head. Right, so I'll put it in perspective. If you're working at Canada Post and your coworker uh, reports an injury and gets uh, reprimanded for it, you get injured. What are you going to do? You're not going to report it because you don't want to be reprimanded, and that's the theme in St. John's. Right, so our members are very upset, uh, and they're willing to take it on. So you know, we've had members reach out to MPs. Uh, I'm hoping to have a meeting with the Federation of Labor. We've got contacts now in Labor Canada. And we're going to take it on, right? That's not right, right? That's a, exactly, you know, our members are so frustrated, they're afraid to go to work now. They're afraid to go and report that walking up one dire street that they slipped and fell. No, it's an accident. An accident nine times out of ten is no fault. But what they want to do is blame the workers and discipline the workers, All right? So, you know, it's very volatile in there right now. And, you know, we are going to take it on. Uh, last one very quickly before we have to go. What does it look like for temperature, wind chill or otherwise for the outdoor duties uh, executed by Canada Post workers? Is there a, a threshold or a number where they don't go outside? Uh, nope, there isn't really. Uh, and if you look at it up in Labrador, they have a lot colder than we do. But we have uh, some of the best protective clothing, protective equipment that uh, we negotiate it, and our members use that. But at the same time, we have a thing called a right to refuse unsafe work. If somebody, if an individual feels that they're up on a uh, single hill and the wind's blowing at 80 kilometers an hour up there where I work in Mount Pearl and it's at 30, they have a right to refuse. Right, So what that means is that there's an investigation, uh, people say yay or nay, and people can protect themselves. Right, So, you know, our members want to deliver the mail. Our members will go out in this weather today and give it their best effort, but they also know that they can protect themselves. 
Uh, Craig, I appreciate the time this morning. Thanks for the call. I'll give you an update, Patty, when I finish with the ministers and Labor Canada and Federation of Labor. I look forward to it. Thank you. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Craig Dyer is the president of the St. John's Local of Cup W. Let's take a break. Maggie Burton is an uh, at-large councillor here in the city of St. John's. The council is considering a text amendment to the St. John's development regulations regarding daycare centres. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to Maggie Burton, who's a councillor at large here in the city of St. John's. Good morning, Maggie. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Doing okay. How about you? I'm great. So what exactly is being considered by the city regarding an amendment to the St. John's development regulations? So there's a couple of components to it. One deals with uh, home-based family child care centers, and the other one deals with daycare centers. So I'll split them up. Um, people probably know in our development regulations we have two different categories of um, uses. So if you want to apply for a home-based business or a home occupation, as they're called, you can either be permitted use or discretionary use. If you're permitted, then you don't have to come to council every time for an approval. It can get done at the staff level, you know, providing you comply with all of our regulations and provincial rules and stuff like that as well. Um, and then the uh, discretionary use means you have to go through a public notification process, a vote by council, uh, and the timeline is much longer. So there's a couple of reasons why we're we're looking to make uh, family-based childcare operations run a bit more smoothly. One is to bring it in line with provincial regulations uh, by doing some housekeeping amendments around, like, exempting these daycares from a um, floor area ratios and things like that that are required. So if you have um, a home business, you're not supposed to exceed a certain amount of your uh, the square meters in the, in the house, but we're looking to exempt uh, home daycares from that rule so that they can just uh, use the whole house as they see fit. And um, so that's one little thing that's, that's sort of like bringing it in line with the provincial regulations. But we're also looking to make them permitted uses in more residential areas so that they don't have to come to council every time for an So you're also talking about allowing daycare centers as permitted use in commercial and industrial zones. That's not the case already? Um, so I, I am pretty sure that the daycare centers are permitted right now in um, – lots of different zones in the city but yeah we're looking to expand it to make sure that daycare centers can go basically everywhere with one important exception and this is what we're currently collecting public feedback on we want to disallow them from from going into places where there's no municipal water service which could um, you know cause a bad situation if there was a fire for example so we want to have uh, a water water services that are on site like that are that are city water so that's that's a big change that we would be considering yeah because when I read that I was kind of wondering if it was about fire or safety of water supply for consumption, but it's more about fire suppression. Yeah, that's my, my impression. And uh, water consumption is probably, probably uh, an important thing too. But yeah, the fire suppression, you know, we um, areas that aren't connected to, to municipal water are more vulnerable for sure. So there's also reference to the two zones that will be included in this consideration, rural residential zone and rural village zone. What are they, what are the differences? Um, so the the rural residential zone, you know, is places where there's um, uh, like you could have like a farmhouse 
in a, a large rural area, and that's your rural residential use there. Um, I don't have all the uh, the development regulations in front of me now to look at all the differences there between them. Uh, just a quick one. This is general reference. So yeah. there's been some sto- news stories come from St. John City Council about the numbers of councillors. And I mean, we know Ian Froud has walked away. There's an ongoing by-election award number four. But the numbers of councillors who have missed the numbers of meetings, has that jeopardized the city's ability to, one, get quorum, and number two, conduct business? I mean, I don't think so. There's been a few of us who have had some uh, some personal issues come up over the year. And, of course, I was one of them who missed a lot of meetings because I had a baby and took some time off. Yeah. Um, but for me, you know, when I'm there, I'm there. And when I'm not there, I'm still reachable by email. And uh, my, my colleagues can call me anytime and ask me for my input on things. So I think that um, there's enough of us around the table to make sure that the city keeps uh, keeps running. And, of course, we have wonderful staff that, uh, that keep the boat afloat no matter what. We've spoken to... Uh, Councillor Ellsworth on this one. This is regarding the most recent budget. So my property tax is going up in the neighborhood of 13%. A lot of this is about vehicle and fleet replacement, whether it be in snow, removal, and ice management and or garbage. My comment has been, and I'll get you to react to it, is that when we talk about fleet management, you know, when I ask around for people who are working in that arena, they say that, you know, an annual big number would be 10 15% as opposed to the huge numbers we see in those two aforementioned areas. Is that a failure in fleet management, or how do you speak to that justifiable 13% increase yeah so i mean over time our uh, our winters are pretty brutal here so i know like a lot of the fleet uh, replacement or fleet acquisition came from doing a um a lot of work with our snow removal and and things like that so if we're looking at plows that are breaking down all the time because of the way that our freeze thaw cycle goes i think like in st john's we do have a lot more wear and tear on our on our uh, public works equipment but um i know that we we completed a um uh, an asset management plan, or we're doing a lot of work with asset management. I think this just sort of came up in a review of um, of all of our assets to look at what needed to be replaced and when. And unfortunately, it was just like a lot at one time. And uh, hopefully, we won't run into a situation like that again if we're if we're really careful with looking at asset management. But uh, yeah, let's bounce back to the daycare issue. So, for opportunities for public feedback, is it simply go to the Engage St. John's.ca website, or how's it working? Yeah, so on engagingjohns.ca, we have a new um, a new program on there that we look at all planning any planning um, proposal that's come forward is all in one place now. So you can go on and see like you know there's um, there's a whole bunch of things that are open for public review and feedback right now, and any amendment to the plan or to the regulations goes on there as well. So if you go on engagingjohns.ca, you can find the uh, text amendment for the daycares, but you can also see a whole bunch of other really great uh, opportunities to have input on local planning and development issues like if there's a fourplex coming in your area or something like that you know you can have uh, you can have some review and comment on it i appreciate the time sorting maggie thank you oh, it's my pleasure Thanks. take care bye-bye maggie burton is a at-large counselor in the city of st john's let's go to line number three bradley you're on the air hey good morning patty good morning to you oh yeah i'm doing okay how about you uh, i'm uh, ill but i had to call you about uh the hockey, uh, the female hockey league that they started up. Sure. Yeah, I was sick as a dog last night, but I was over talking to mom, and of course we had saw the story uh, Maggie Burton or Maggie uh, Connors last night. So I know you're a bit in the know in St. John's with the hockey scene, and I'm looking around. Is there is there either chat about like St. John's getting in on that league or? 
Not that I've heard. I mean, they're even talking about the growlers going away, possibly being sold. I haven't heard any expansion talks. We had Maggie Connors on the program. I've actually reached out to some of the leadership of the Professional Women's League to talk about what expansion plans look like. I think they're just trying to catch their breath because after the formal announcement, six months later was the first game with the original six teams that they have in place. So I don't know how quick we're going to see any expansion talk, and I have no earthly idea whether or not St. John's would be on that list, to be honest. Okay. You would assume that would be probably start with bigger centers closest to the hub because right now they're all fairly congested. Minnesota, Montreal, Ottawa, New York, Boston, Toronto. I think going any further afield than maybe Halifax or something like that or even further west beyond Winnipeg would be probably spreading their wings a little bit too quick and too fast and too far, but it remains to be seen. I have nothing to do with it, but it's an interesting question. I haven't considered whether or not St. John's would be in on the action. But, uh, I didn't know that about the growlers either. That's first. I'm not exactly uh, current affairs on everything because this female hockey league just came out of nowhere too for me. I had no idea it was on the go, but I thought it was pretty cool because it's something we've been talking about for a while. I knew like some people had been putting the push, you know, behind the scenes to get it going. And it just came out of nowhere, and I thought it was pretty cool. But uh, there was no logos or, you know, yeah, they're a little bit lax. They really do need monikers on the teams. It can't simply be the Toronto franchise. They need to give them some sort of handle. I agree with that. The logos are a bit collegiate, not necessarily as professional as many people would anticipate. But between Jaina Hefford, and I mean, they got people like Billie Jean King involved, bringing some pretty significant horsepower. And of course, Maggie scored her first goal of the season just the other day. Uh, her line was out there for two goals, and they uh, so she looked good. She was player of the game for the first game ever. So Maggie's off to a fine start. They've only played seven games of the Toronto. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I, I'm loving to see it. I was just wondering because I know, like, you guys are on the pulse around here with hockey all the time. I, and of course, I love getting down to the games. It's one of the best nights out. And I'm sad here about growlers too. That's uh, yeah. Well, it, n- nothing's done, but some yeah. of those conversations are happening. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, Bradley, uh, enjoy the hockey. I appreciate the call. Cheers, buddy. Thank you, and uh, you have a good day. You too, man. Bye-bye. There you go. We'll take it. <laughs> Ripping off some K-Rock action. Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, the chair of NL Crime Stoppers is Rod Pike. The topic for conversation this morning, human trafficking. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Let's take a moment to Rod Pike. He's the chair of NL Crime Stoppers, and good morning, Rod. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. Thanks again for uh, allowing us some time. I'm happy to do it. I mean, these are important conversations. Sometimes I think when people hear human trafficking, that's something that happens in Thailand. That's something that happens uh, in the bigger cities around the world, as opposed to the fact that it happens everywhere. And some of the numbers in Canada are quite startling. Where would you like to start? Well, anytime we have this conversation, I guess, from Crime Stoppers, I always want to first start with the fact of who we are. And some people will know the name, but we always want to bring home that uh, reporting to us is anonymous. Uh, We're a community-based organization, and we have three components, which is the community, the media, and the police, law enforcement. The community is really the most vital part of that, because unless people call and report things that they see suspicious in their community or things that they may know going on about a crime— Uh, we're ineffective. So we always ask for the community's support. So we're always going to throw that out there when we start. It's a good place Uh, to start. And, of course, the numbers mm -hmm. are these. You won't hear it all the time. 1-800-222-TIPS. Yep. And and the anonymity thing is that we always want to make sure that's that's noted there. Sure. Uh, Most people, I think, Patty, visualize human trafficking as occurring, like you said, in the big cities or other countries. But it's happening here as well. 
Um, when we looked, I sent you some information, and it's 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 long, and if we would never have the time to go through it all. But there's one pertinent thing in there that I want to throw out, and on your, if you're looking, it's on page 10. And it talks about the fact that since 2011 and 2012, these are national figures, but they're still important. Whatever happens uh, west of Port of Basque eventually makes its way here. It might be a little slower getting here, but it comes. So we're we're six times as many human trafficking cases uh, in 2021-22 from 10 years earlier, and 16 times as many uh, completed charges being laid in that 10-year period. So, you know, we're seeing this human trafficking uh, continue to grow. It's continuing to be a problem. And to your point, it may not be as big here as it is in Toronto or Calgary, but it's here, and we need to be aware of it. And I think a lot of people confuse sometimes human trafficking with smuggling. Uh, Smuggling, the, the easy definition of it is when someone is being moved from one country to another, and when they get here, then they try to make their own way. They may be illegal when they're here, but they're kind of on their own two feet and, and making a go of it. Uh, trafficking is when someone else is coercing them into uh, any number of things. And we see basically two types of human trafficking in Newfoundland, uh, labor trafficking and sex trafficking. So if I could just touch on the first one first, we have a large number of new Canadians here in our province, and we need to make sure in one sense that we're keeping an eye on them, that we're helping them not become victims of trafficking. Uh, if the public suspects a business of providing poor working or living conditions, uh, showing controlling behavior towards employees, withholding their documents, they should share that information with the police. And if they're not comfortable with doing that, then certainly with us, and we can get that uh, information passed on. When we talk about whether or not things happen here or people in this province are impacted, there's a social worker who does work with the RCMP that lives in the Peel-Durham region, greater Toronto area, and I spoke with her off-air. She didn't want to go on air or put her name to it, but she reports seeing young people, particularly girls, from this province being trafficked where she's working. So it is happening to people in this province. And let's just give some uh, numbers out there for context. There was 3,996 police-reported incidents of human trafficking between 2012 and 2022. In 2022 alone, there was 528 police-reported incidents of human trafficking, a slight decrease from 2021, but the numbers are massive. If you look back to 2012, there was 100 or less police-reported incidents of human trafficking, then a major spike between 13 and 15, and then, I don't know what happened, but a huge spike between 2018 and 2019, and a bit of a flat line thereafter, but those two spike areas, do we have any insider information as to why that was the way it was, or was it maybe simply the case that people were willing to make reports to police because that, we can only capture reports that were made to police, not the overall big picture. I sure wish I could give you an answer to that, but I can't. Uh, I believe some of this uh, might be cyclical, that maybe they have uh, certain things they're working towards and need certain people to be in a, involved in a certain area. And once they reach that number, they back up. I don't know. But the numbers are startling when you refer to it. And these are reported cases. Uh, any law enforcement I think we've talked to or that you would have talked to will tell you that's not all of them. No. These are the ones that are getting dealt with, and in many cases, uh, people fall under the radar. They don't get reported. They're, they're afraid to report it themselves. They don't have the means to do it, and that's why we think it's crucial for the eyes in the community, the people that are out there that know their neighborhoods, know their communities, keep an eye for signs that maybe something isn't quite right. 
Um, you know, sex trafficking is something that often is the only thing we, we think of when we think of the trafficking of people, that that's what they're being trafficked for. But it's not always that. Um, you know, they could be looking at uh, bringing people in to do cheaper labor, uh, maybe to do uh, there's some really grisly things about this as well. Maybe it's for organ donation and some things. Uh, there, you know, the, it's a really dark hole that you go into when you talk about human trafficking. And uh, one of the things that we want to bring up for people in their areas is just to look at things that might be a sign that things aren't right. And we look at little things like an Airbnb that might be in a city that hasn't been used, but suddenly it's getting a constant flow of traffic. You're seeing young people being brought in and brought out, um, you know, at very odd hours of the day. Uh, women traveling with someone who are holding all their documents, uh, someone renting out multiple rooms at a local motel. Things that just don't fit a pattern. Uh, not always does that indicate there's something wrong, but sometimes it does. And so if you see something going on in your neighborhood that's markedly different from what it used to be, uh, take note of it. And uh, again, call us or, or call the police, whatever you're most comfortable with doing, and uh, and report it. Uh, these are real issues. We, we worked, and I'll, I'll just go personal for a second. We helped a lady here uh, probably two years ago now who was being trafficked in a different part of the country. And... Uh, <laughs> It's real. Uh, the fear that that person has when they're thousands of miles from where they normally are, and yet, you know, we think it's safe here, but we're not in that position where uh, we're being sought and so you're afraid to show your face, you wear a hat down over your, your, you know, you always got a hoodie up. All those things to protect you, even though we think we live in a relatively safe area, and we do. But there are still predators out there that are looking for these people, and uh, it's just incumbent on us to, you know, to make it a safer place. And I don't mean to be sounding emotional on that, but um, you know, it's real stuff. Oh, sure it is. And we talked about other not-for-profit organizations here in this province, like Blue Door and the Thrive, and those folks who actually work on boots on the ground as well. <clears throat> and they know it's and they acknowledge it's quite real. You talk about identifying the signs. I do know that there's some major hotel chains. They have formal training for the, what they call their front of the house staff to recognize yeah, when do. something's wrong, which is yeah. extremely helpful. But adding in some of these short-term rentals, like Airbnb, if they're in and around your neighborhood, <clears throat> you know, it might not just be people going in and out for buying or selling drugs. It could indeed be sex trafficking. So it's worth taking a note of what's happening around where you are. And most of this happens in urban centers, but curiously, the province with the highest rate of incident in the country is Nova Scotia. So that mm -hmm. just paints a picture of why we think of Atlantic Canada as a quiet, more safer place. That stat alone just should paint the picture that keep your eyes open. Yeah, the other thing I mentioned, Patty, before I go, I, I know you've got a lot of people on this, on this uh, show today. Um, Sometimes it can be people uh, who are groomed by a partner. Often it's it's domestic. It can be a parent who's trafficking their 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 child. It can be a spouse uh, trafficking their their spouse. Uh, these are again it, it's dark places to go, but it happens. Um, you know, if you see someone um, who is suddenly driving a car that's way above their means. They're getting clothes and, and luxury items that they normally wouldn't have the means to buy. Maybe they're being groomed by someone or, or this is a reward for something else that they're doing. Um, 
so all these are again are little indicators that are out there that something doesn't look right and it's not always a nefarious thing <laughs> there could be other reasons those things are happening but again have your head have your eyes on and, and look around and and uh, just see if these are things that cause concern. You probably know these people. If it's something really different, uh, maybe they need help. The vast majority are women and girls, but it does happen to boys yeah. as well. And uh, one of the more sad, evil stats inside of this, one of four victims of human trafficking in the country are children and youth. So yeah. it, it's a big conversation. And not intended to be fear-mongering or hyperbolic or sensationalizing issues. It's just information is power. And when you hear these types of chats, hopefully that will just you know ignite a sixth sense in you to maybe look around and recognize that some of the things that you've been seeing are kind of some of the curious uh, identifying problems that you're talking about this morning. Morning. So let's hope that's the outcome. Rod, anything else you'd like to add this morning? Um, I'm I'm the eternal optimist, Patty. I always think there's more good than there is bad. There's plenty of bad out there, but I, I really believe that, um, you know, there are enough people out there that want to do things correctly and, and within the law that will always overcome the other. So I just, again, encourage people to... Uh, to think of their own community, uh, anything that we do through Crime Stoppers, and I think even local and law enforcement only works at their best when the community is involved. So keep your eyes open. If you see stuff, call the police, call us, and uh, we'll, we'll do our best to help keep everybody safe. 1-800-222-TIPS, and as usual, it's anonymous. I appreciate the time, Rod. We always appreciate yours. Thank you. Take care. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye. Brad Pike is the chair of NL Crime Stoppers. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about phone bills. And, of course, the Rogues got off to a flying start this past weekend out at the Mary Brown Center, took a pair of games off, off the Jamestown Jackals, and I believe the KW Titans come to town beginning tomorrow night. Rogues coach Jerry Williams also right after the break. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this hour on line number two. Say good morning to the head coach of the Newfoundland Rogues. That's Jerry Williams. Coach Williams, you're on the air. How are you doing, Patty? Thank you for having me, man. Doing fine, uh, Coach. Thanks for making time for the show. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you so much. So, a bit of a new look. I think only four returnees for the Rogues this year. You got a pretty tall club. I think average height six six. You had a seven footer in the lineup on the weekend. Got another seven footer coming to town. South Carolinian uh, William Brown. How does it change the approach when you're playing big ball? Well, it's, you know, for me, I'm a, I like to get up and down the court. Like that's always been my style. Um, but to be honest with you, having the big guys out there and able to slow it down a little bit is really working well for us right now. So at one point I had a 6'10 guy and a 7-foot guy in the court at the same time, and, you know, it was really well. Like, we did really good. So um, I'm just, you know, looking into that style of playing slow ball a little bit, along with the fastball, because I feel like you go small at times. But it, it's always good when you got 6'10", 7-foot, 6'11 guys out there. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the NBA, for instance, Big guys are becoming a bit more part of the game. You know, it was dominated by the three-pointer. Then you see guys like Weminyama running the floor at seven foot six or whatever he is. Just madness. This is a bit of an odd question, Jerry. But, like, on the weekend, Cheney had a nice night on Saturday, right? 29 points, nine assists, got a big win, 120-98. How do you try to avoid some of the things that we sometimes see in the NBA? Like, Embiid the other night with 70 points, Towns with 62. But they started to feed him, trying to get him over these big numbers. Like, do you have to try to encourage your guys to resist trying to pump up like Cheney's numbers to get him to that 30 mark because you know taking your eye off the structure of the play to try to feed one guy can maybe sideline the team and the progress 
Right. I've never been a fan of that at all. Like, I think that's ridiculous um, for them to just give him the ball to try to – it just it, it tears the team up for me. Um, but for NB and B, they, they was all about it. Like, they were all, all – if you watch the game, you could see that they all was trying to feed him so he could score as many points as possible. Um, I had a long talk with Armani. He's going to score his points no matter what. Um, he's that type of player. But he has to understand, like, team is first, and that's the most important part of this structure. So he's going to he's gonna score his points, but he's going to do it within the system. He's not just going to go out and say, let me get mine and see what else happens. That's, that's just not going to work this year. <laughs> yeah, and Embiid, 70, the ninth player in NBA history to hit the 70-plus mark. It was on the same date where Kobe Bryant had his famous 81 points, which is interesting. Philly wins that game. Minnesota loses that game by trying to force feed it to town. So there's, you know, two different outcomes, but also with the same approach can really hurt the team. What should people expect when they go down to see the Rogues? Because one thing to have a big team, it's always fun to see big, tall players like seven-footers and 6'11 guys. But what can they anticipate? I mean, just to see really good basketball, um, to be honest with you, Patty, like we have put together, we spent a lot of time on the road this summer trying to get these guys together. And like you said, I have William Brown, who just we picked up from the airport yesterday, who's here, seven-foot guy, that's going to help us out tremendously. Um, and, you know, the fans, just the fan support within itself. You know, the first two games, we got down the first game by 13 at one point. And I knew it was going to happen because the guys were, you know, nervous and it was their first game. It's eight new players on the team and things of that nature. But the fans, you know, they stuck in there and they, they showed support and they were basically our six man for that game and we came back and won by 10 and then the next day they were just as good so um, the fans you know just show up and just see that we you know we have a really good product on the floor we got KW coming in which is a really really good team so the fans will see a really good game a really good series actually between us and them um, so like you said the, the taller guys are going to be out there but we're still going to play Rose basketball and, and give our all where does Brown come from? I know he's a born and raised in South Carolina. I'm not sure where he played his NCAA ball, but what league was he playing in last year? Well, he was uh, just in Syria, and he was in Taiwan. Um, he, we actually, I saw him in Vegas. He was in a Vegas camp as well. Um, and, you know, he went to Fayetteville State. That's the school he graduated from, Fayetteville State University. So, um, William Brown, he's, he's, he's a player. He's tall, but, he, you know, he could step out and shoot the three and things of that nature as well, just like you were talking about MD. Like, these guys are different now. They're built different. They act different. They, they're just different type players. But um, he's a well-rounded seven-footer for sure. I know folks like Tony Kenny, who's the driving force behind the Rogues, is big on involving the team in the community. So what's, what's up for those plans? It's so funny that you say that. I literally just got a text from, um, I hope I say this right, Sheshashi. Yeah. When we went out there last year. Yeah. I really, I got a text just now from the guy that we're setting it up to go back out there as well. So we will do that again and go out there run like a three or four day count for those guys. Um, I did Sheshashi, Labrador, and it's, it's, it's weird that you say that. But yeah, we're in the community, man. We're all about it. That's, that's our main focus is to get in the community, get our name out there, make sure the fans understand that we have a good team here. We want them to come out and support and things of that nature. So, um, yeah, it's good, man. We're going to be in the community a lot, like a lot, a lot is starting up for sure. Now, you know the Growlers, the hockey team, they'll do their best to engage with the fans on game night or what have you, but simply the way the basketball court is structured and the way the seats are placed, the opportunity to interact with the basketball players is vastly different than it is with the hockey players, which is another fun feature. And it's a bit more loud because, of course, you can have some music going and stuff while play is on, uh, unlike hockey, for instance. So it's a fun game night experience. Uh, anything else, Coach, before we say goodbye? 
No, just want to um, come on and just let everybody know to come out, support the team. You know, the fans, we really need you guys. You're our sixth man for sure. And we got a good product on the floor. We got a really good series coming up with KW, and we need all the support we can get. As a Florida and boy, coach, yeah, sure. fair <laughs> enough. As a Florida boy, how are you handling the cold? <laughs> Hey, man, listen, I don't sit outside in the chair in the cold. So it's cold out there, but I'm not out there. So it's fine. It's fine with me. <laughs> Good to have you on, Coach. Good luck. All right. Thanks, man. Take care. Bye-bye. Right. That's Jerry Williams. He's the coach of the Rogues. Let's go to line number one. Marie, you're on the air. Hi, Marie. Oh. Hi. Hi there. Um, uh, good morning, Patty. Thank you for taking my call. No problem. Um. I'm not allowed to mention the carrier, but I've had a cell phone now for quite a few years. And uh, a phone call came in about a tablet, $10 for two years. So, of course, I took advantage. And uh, then they said, we'll give you five gigabytes, which I don't know the difference as a senior. So I said, fine, $65 and $10 a month for my uh, tablet for two years. Uh, I've had the tablet for four years. I canceled it two years ago, the $10 a month. And um, I went into the Cornerbrook Plaza to check out any specials on and my bill and try to get in to see what it looks like because they don't do paper bills. They got into my phone anyway for 65 still charging me $75 a month. Um, they knew that I couldn't get in there because I'm one of them just pays 100 a month, leave it. If you're over, you're go- they're going to get you. Anyway, um, finally I got a hold to them, and when I did, uh, he apologized, and he said, you weren't on the phone long enough when you cancel it. I said, you're after calling me about five times since then for different options, and I said, no more. I already had one, and I canceled it. When I went downtown to find out about it, it was never, ever canceled. So I'm still paying $10 a month. So they give me the manager's number up away. I called him, and he apologized. But he said, you can't get your money back. But he said, uh, you know, that's all you can do. Well, I said, you know, a senior and telling them five gigabytes for a month for $65 and still charging me for the other thing is not very nice. How many more seniors were out there like me? Anyways, he called me back. He gave me 60 gigabytes for $40 a month and apologized. So what I'm thinking about, how many more is out there like me? I've already got four seniors that I've called that I really close friends of mine that they've been overcharged so I think it's time for the seniors including like myself it's a bad way to find it out but you need to check and don't accept no phone calls because if you accept then you're saying yes or no you're still going to be charged Go to the source. It's always the best piece of advice. Go to them. Not, don't wait for them to come to you. And secondly, you know, it's helpful to remind for everybody, seniors and everybody else, is pay close attention to your bill. There could be mistakes. There could be charges that linger even after changes have been made to your account. So keep an eye on your bills as opposed to they flow in. You've got an automatic payment plan set up with your bank. Make sure that you're not paying more than you're, you're expecting to. And any old charge that should have gone by the wayside, make sure it is. Yeah, it's not nice, is it? No, of course so not. Like I said, there's a lot more out there, honey, like me. Like, I don't know a difference between gig and bites now. <laughs> like, uh, so I think that 
the seniors, especially the seniors and young ones today, they can take a computer apart, a phone apart, and put it back together. They know everything. But if you don't have someone to do that for you and you're overcharged like that for two, three years, that's not nice. And the second little thing that I wanted to talk about was um, I think it's time for somebody in our government to start talking about how we're overpopulated. I mean, I've been just listening to everybody calling in, and it's very sad, our situation right now. Groceries are sky high. There's no place to live. And nobody won't come up with a number of how many people is put in our province. So we need to talk about that. And they're going to have to give us a perfect number. It has to stop somewhere. That's all I had to say, Patty, today. Well, it's I don't know how overpopulated we will be here in this province because just for historical context, in 1990, the population of the province was about 577,000. It's about 30 to 40,000 less today. So we've seen the population decrease steadily over the last 30 years, somewhat of an increase last year, but we're nowhere near the heights we've had just as recently as 1990. So what do you think of the situation? Don't you think there's just... There's no place to live. There's no place to rent. The groceries has gone sky high. Like, we're just little people trying to live. And, I mean, it's like you got to sell your own home. You can't afford to keep it. So, I mean, something got to give, honey. <laughs> right? That's all I'm saying. I think it's time for them to come on and tell us how many that they have put in Newfoundland and how many more are they taking in? I listened to Jerry Byrne the other day. He said, another crowd come today, tomorrow, the next day. This got to stop for a while. Let us get in control here. Let us live a bit. So, and I mean, that's all I'm trying to say is get my word out there like the rest of the people that's calling in. We need some answers and we need them. Right? Well, that's it for me, Patty. Appreciate the time, Marie. God love you. Take care. Bye. Right, bye-bye. And, you know, since 1990, I, I think it's pretty popular to use 30-year windows when we look at trends and the like. And, of course, things will change dramatically decade over decade. But in Canada, now we've cleared 40 million people in the country, right? In 1990, the population was just less than 28 million. So there's been exponential growth in the population base. But I think people will be surprised to be reminded of that number. In 1990, just prior to the COD moratorium, where some 30,000 people left the province almost immediately, there was 577,000 plus people living in Newfoundland Labrador then. Population now is around 540, so some 37-ish thousand and less people than 1990 so it's an interesting comparison for population and what it means for access to services and the like okay let's take a break when we come back lots of show left for you the topic entirely up to you don't go away hey and welcome back to the show let's go to line number one good morning Simeon you're on the air good morning Patty good morning to you I called this morning uh, regarding the uh, the concern I have with the uh, the North Coast uh, narrow sheesh for for, uh, for for us as as uh, patients, Serena patients. Uh, right now, I believe uh, the number is people from Navajo residing in Goose Bay area and also including Shadid, probably close to 100 people now because of their of the diabetes and other health factors. That's has prevent them to uh, to reside back in home in their Natashish. 
And I've been thinking about this for the longest time now, and I've been ill. I've been away from my community ever since 2019, I believe. That's when I was made back out from Narashish, and later on I was diagnosed with cancer and uh, have prostate issues for the longest time now. But anyway, um, and also uh, also that I want to point out uh, that I've been thinking about this, uh, creating not a reserve in, in between Shadid and also Narashish. That's only a possibility. And um, what I'm going to do now is try to have a dialogue with uh, with the feds, uh, right to the minister, federal minister of uh, Indigenous Affairs, uh, stating my uh, my idea, the idea of uh, creating another reservation within Labrador, because of the the hardships that we uh, trying to access medical uh, medical services and other dental services, also uh, I. I our examinations and other health uh, factors that that we find ourselves very comp- uh, uh, find it very complicated to to access these to, these healthcare services and also accessing professionals within the health health field. Simeon, but what we, does it take to establish a new reservation or a new community? Well, I think in order for me to bring my case forward with the uh, with the feds, I have to provide my facts. I have to do a lot of research. I have to do with the, the food cost, and it's, exp- uh, it's been very, very crazy up up north. And like, I mean, a bag of uh, wings, uh, probably, I don't know, probably thirty in a bag, cost now about sixty nine ninety nine uh, in Nagashi. You know, uh, other some stuff that's very, very uh, detrimental to to low income families, and especially people who don't have any income, who are in uh, income support. Those are the, the, those things, and also uh, the housing crisis we have. It's just very limited how homes have been built every year. Um, I don't believe we access. I don't believe uh, our council is accessing the federal programs with housing programs that's been announced by Canada a uh, number of a uh, number of times now. But uh, what we are now exasperating our of our, our trust funds uh, using as a capital uh, capital fund to to fund these homes and uh, building new homes. And, and that's and that's good, but I think uh, like in any other country, they should uh, in in this country, I think uh, people are entitled to services and and the programs are out there, especially the uh, indigenous people. And uh, uh, the feds are our trustees within reservation of Navajos and also Shajit, and that that's people should realize that because they're 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 the ones who are holding the stick right now and holding the fork and that's why i think uh some some kind of study that i have to be that i have to be very uh very upbeat for it and trying to get all the facts like medical 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 facts also the food crisis the the, the prices and also living up north and that trying to access transportation like the rest of the country is having they have a a good transportation which caused the, the foods uh are not that high up north, and uh, and those are the concerns and people who cannot go back and uh, having a hard time finding apartments in uh, Goose Bay area, also Shahajid area, and it's costing our band a lot of a lot of dollars from our trust funds. Have been exasperated and exhausted our funds and and trying to maintain the uh, the health the well being of of, of the inner patients, and those are my. Uh, my uh, my responsibility is to bring this forward, and it wouldn't hurt to have a conversation with the feds, 
And uh, I think it's, it's a good possibility that uh, that the res- uh, reservation could also be created within within between Goose Bay and, and Labrador because of uh, of the health factors and also uh, the transportation and also the food crisis and other social uh, the struggling stuff that we cannot access because when you ship something right now if you try try to travel up north from Goose Bay to Nevada, it will probably cost you around close to five hundred dollars one way ticket. <laughs> So how, just let me ask you this. How would creating a new reserve, you know, address things like the price of food, food security, access to health care, some of the societal issues that some communities in Labrador face? So why would a new reservation make those things easier or better? Uh, Patty, it's not only the food issues. It's also, like I said, the, the, the health care, the health care wise and the health problems with, that we that we face every day in, uh, in Narashish. And it's not just the food prices. It's just not, not, not there's only many factors that, that has to be tapped into and have to be looked at and uh, put in consideration. And the roads are very accessible. Shady, I reside in Shady. I don't, I don't uh, buy that. I don't uh, spend that much money on, on groceries because I don't pay $70 a bag of uh, wings uh, when I can buy them at co-op, probably 30 bucks. So that's a big difference there to... Uh, to buy some items, food items, and other other some essential uh, uh, stuff that needs to be uh, need, needed in, in in life, and so those are uh, health uh, hospitals uh, rather than be waited to to be made back out from Naroshish, and you gotta, if you're stuck in there, then the chances are you're not going to survive, and that's those are the risk risk factors that that. That need to be put in consideration, I think, and that's it's my responsibility, I think, to get those facts and and get the numbers and the stats and uh, and see uh, the the amount of, uh, of the amount of struggles we we face as you know people up north coast. And uh, I mean, if if the province and the feds can uh, make non-Aboriginal people into Aboriginal people, and and that's happening, I don't see why not. It this can't be considered. I appreciate the time and the chat this morning, Simi. And anything else before I take a break? Oh, thank you very much. It's just a very temporary, uh, very, very uh, preliminary uh, research that I'm doing, but I'm going to try to have a dialogue with the Indians first because I will I will try my best to uh, to get those facts and, and put them up uh, forward to uh, to the feds and, and make them uh, uh, look at the, uh, the concerns and also the... Uh, the, the necessary services that that needs to be uh, that needs to be uh, looked at, and, and that's the only thing. I'm not doing this to create a division within the community of Nalashish. I'm not doing this to attack any uh, personal attacks to the leadership. But I think there's there's a lot of concerns that needs to be done, and and and, and I think that's it's only a preliminary and uh, and checking. I appreciate the time. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break on on cue. Don't go away. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News talk on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Second more to a member of the Long Harbor Council. That's Bill Murphy. Bill, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Doing okay. How about you? Oh, Tano, she's cold out there. It is chilly. Oh boy, yeah. Uh, just touching base now uh, again because uh, I'm just not going to stop till this issue goes to, to uh, a, a court. 
thought is just being the, the, the latest is uh, update on, and I don't want to get convoluted with just things of stories and whatnot, but it's like, uh, the two counselors that are suspended uh, just keeps getting buried in paperwork and uh, <laughs> stuck. Uh, the uh, the, um, uh, uh, the there's legislation that was written under Andy Litter uh, right now, uh, obviously vindictively. Uh, the, the, uh, uh, I was expecting one. I don't know what, I don't know what happened because I was barred from the last council meeting, but there, I know it was on the agenda to. Uh, 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 Complaints or something about uh, 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 against the anti-litter legislation uh, on the property. I know the, uh, one other councillor was done. Uh, the champion of the the legislation could easily be uh, chased with uh, the conflict of interest. Uh, complaints because it, it comes from there. But I just basically, I'm just keeping the attention to municipal affairs because this has to go in front of a, uh, it has to be argued in front of a judge. I, I got uh, a letter from the the uh, the legal firm just recently uh, dictating so much stuff, but. Uh, with with just uh, statutes and codes, etc. But of course, noted was unless ruled against by uh, the courts, and which is uh, uh, that's, that's it. It's it, it's time. It's it, no, enough is enough. Let's let, let, let's take it in front of a judge and see what happens. So, is this simply about the conflict of interest stuff? Conflict, well, the, the, the conflict of interest is, is just something I just talked about. And code of conduct. It's about, it's about code of conduct. Okay. Legislation that, that, uh, uh, and the, the, they keep uh, going with the, uh, the, the, the Municipalities Act uh, uh, points in it. Uh, and But each municipality is responsible for writing their own and as per uh, another training course I had to do last week uh, uh, specifically some of its verbatim uh, of the template from the uh, from the uh, municipalities act which is uh, which, which is fair but then there's then underneath that there's policies and regulations that are written and enforced by that that Hold no weight whatsoever, and they're and they're literally done to uh, to push an agenda that and and you know what? Is play by the rules? I'm I'm all about that. So right, let's come out, but at least get them right. Fair enough. I've seen a, ver- a variety of these code of conduct. Uh, papers from different municipalities there's as many gray areas as there are black and white it's some of them are very clumsily written that's exactly my point and it's like to be to be sit for uh to be mandated and pushed around with this like you said i'll use use your term gray area but it's it's like okay let's bring bring it in front of the magistrate let's figure this out Fair enough, Billy. Uh, anything else before we say goodbye this morning? Uh, no, not, not absolutely. Uh, just 
uh, happy winter. Is, uh, she's, she's really freezing in. Have a good day. Tis that. You, you too. Take good care. Back at you. Right. Bye, Billy. Uh, let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number two. Kenny, you're on the air. How you doing? Okay, you? Me, not bad. What's on your mind? Oh, uh, I'm calling from Belong, and uh, there, there's supposed to be both shelters here, and uh, where my grandson lives, right? They're near both shelters there, right? They're still in the cold, and there's a few other places that need both shelters, right? So the children are get getting into the cold. Are there any bus shelters on Bell Island anyway? Uh, it, it, I only seen one. Okay. Right, and we're down uh, no more Crescent, just near, near a bus shelter, and then poor children were out in the cold. Yeah, well, I mean, <clears throat> I don't know. What kind of bus operation is even on Bell Island? What is it? Uh, school buses. Okay. Oh, you mean simply for school buses? Okay, I was a little bit confused. Yeah. Like them children up their froze and deaths through Yeah, I don't think there's such a thing as a bus stop even here in the city for school bus riders unless you happen to be lucky enough to be on a main drag and can duck in to one of the metro bus bus uh, shelters. Yeah, well, we got uh, buses here that stops at each stop and for them standing out in the cold, uh, it's not right. I, I was over speaking to the council and uh, the town council, he already knows about it, but I can't see nothing being done. Yeah, and of course that would be 100% a municipal issue, I suppose, if we're talking about bus shelters for school bus riders. But it was bitterly cold this morning. I imagine it's still pretty cold out here today. Oh, you got that one right. Yeah, bitter. I just walked over, over to school and back, and I froze to death. Yeah, well, well now just even walking in from uh, the parking lot to the uh, to the door of the building here this morning, fingertips were absolutely numb. I suppose I'm too stupid to put on a pair of gloves when it's as cold as, as it is this morning. But, Kenny, there's actually a candidate uh, in the queue to talk next, uh, Kimberly Churchill, running for the NDP yeah, in Conception B, Spell Island. And so maybe she'd like to respond to your, th- your thoughts and comments first before we get into some other issues. Is there a number to call her? Well, I'll get her to give one out here. I don't know what the number is to her campaign office, but uh, I'll ask her that. She'll probably offer that right away when we say good morning. How's that? Do you need my number? Uh, no, we have it. Dave has it. All right, thank you. No problem, Kenny. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, let's keep rolling. Let's see here. Let's go to line number one. As advertised, say good morning to the NDP candidate running in the by-election in Conception Bay, East Bell Island. And, of course, advanced polling is open. There's three locations in that voting district where you can cast that vote. And the election itself is on Monday, January 29th. So good morning, Kimberly Churchill. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing? Doing okay. How about you? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you. So you want to give out your campaign office number for Kenny to uh, potentially give you a shout? I sure can. Now... Um, he, actually, I might have uh, spoken to him recently about another issue, but I can give out the campaign headquarters, 739-6387. Yep. Fair enough. So if he's interested, he can give you a shout. Uh, so here we go. There's uh, access to information requests that you submitted, uh, you and the party, I guess, submitted, looking for all kinds of things. Look for a list of all the doctors, nurses, pharmacists, medical technicians who have left NL Health Services in the past two years. Also looking at vacancies in all medical-related job titles over the same period. I went through some of it this morning. Where would you like to begin? 
Right. So, um, so yeah, I, I ended up looking at this. I did a number, actually, of ATIPs in, in December um, uh, preparing for the election, and uh, I did some for Bell Island, actually, with regards to the ferry and, and with regards to the hospital over there looking for information. Um, and I did some for um, for, our, for the rest of the province for the health care system. And it was quite startling, of course, as I, I mentioned yesterday in the press conference, the, uh, the numbers are quite shocking. Um, not surprising, because government hasn't been transparent and telling the public where we are with regards to the healthcare uh, professionals that are actually in the system. We hear them talk oftentimes about uh, recruitment, but we are never told how many people have actually left. And, uh, and that was one of the things that bothered me. And in fact, what sparked this in the very beginning was there was a brochure that came to my house um, just before the previous MHA uh, for our area resigned or, or retired. And uh, it was from Andrew Fury of government um, talking about this particular district and all the wonderful things happening in this district. I don't know how many other people in the province in their districts would have received a similar brochure that was customized for their area. I know this district did. Quite convenient timing. But one of the things that was stated was he was touting about how many doctors had been recruited. And immediately I thought, well, you're not telling us how many have left. And that is why the ATIP went in. So we learned that, you know, 115 doctors, not counting the ones that are, are probably practice family care doctors, but the ones that are working with health care, 115 have resigned. There was actually over 1,009 resignations in just Eastern Health alone and a total of 1,905 vacancies in the public health care system. And some of these have been vacant for up to 154 weeks. Now, look, I'll be the first one to say that, you know, this has been a problem caused by successive governments. We all know that. Um, and to be honest with you, you know, I think the only thing that's debatable when it comes to health care is, was it the Liberal Party or was it the PC Party who made it the worst? Because both of them have, have certainly uh, had their hand in where we are to today. Um, but it uh, certainly is quite alarming. And what's also alarming is that, you know, we have these allied health workers who are trying so hard to work with government, um, and there's over 16 of these professionals that are listed uh, out of the long list of professionals that are part of the people that have resigned. So it's, uh, it's quite frustrating because... Um, you know, I heard Tom Osborne yesterday come out uh, and talk about what I had released and um, and talked about the NDP. And he happened to mention immediately that, you know, well, we have this uh, new unit and, you know, great things are happening. They're happy to announce that now and they can tell the public that they've been, you know, working on this. But why would they be sitting on that great news for more than 20 days, not tell the public, when it seems like, during this by-election, they had been certainly releasing all their good news stories and information pretty regularly to let people know what government is doing. So I, I got to, I got to be honest. Um, I don't believe that's the case. From people I've spoke to, and I've spoke to healthcare unions, and I'm looking at the opening positions that were open as of January 15th, and it's not the case. I've been told that, in fact, if we lose any more radiation therapists, we won't be able to do cancer therapy anymore in this province. So, does that sound like the good news story that Mr. Osborne was trying, or Minister Osborne was trying to spin yesterday? Oh, I don't know, I, but I mean, I don't think this is anything new that governing parties would put their best foot forward when there's an election by election or otherwise and the fact of the matter is that fourth radiation unit did reopen which 
regardless of who uh, anybody wants to support as a party or a candidate, I think that's good for us collectively because just imagine the angst and the worry to get that diagnosis and then have to get your treatment out of province. So, look, as I say repeatedly... The province can tell me there was 50 doctors came here with the Come Home Year initiative. They can tell me we recruited 400 nurses in India. They can tell me we created all these daycare spaces. The only number that matters is the net gain. So while doctors mm-hmm. are hired, doctors are leaving and or, resi- or pardon me, retiring, and consequently, the high-level number only paints half the picture. I just need to know how much further ahead we are, not, you know, two steps forward, uh, two steps back, or one step forward, two steps back. So being a little bit more transparent and some of these catchwords are kind of throwaway at this moment in time but being a bit more transparent about whether or not we're actually making advances versus only telling me half the story is not helping anybody a hundred percent you know that's one of the things that i did mention is that you know government needs to be more transparent i know it's a word that is thrown around but it's 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 extremely important the, the only reason why the public even is made aware of what's happening right now with regards to these resignations is because the NDP brought it to the media yesterday. And the NDP did the work to find out what was actually going on. Without the NDP, a lot of the issues that we have seen uh, that have been brought to the forefront with the high cost of travel nurses, housing crisis, these would not be um, talked about. And, you know, the NDP are demonstrating it is the only effective opposition to force government to be accountable. And this is something that affects you, it affects me, it affects everybody in, in the entire province health care affects everyone there has to be transparent transparency around this we need to know the numbers um and so it's important that you know if the liberals want us to believe anything else they need to start bringing this information to the public instead of forcing people to go digging themselves as usual, you know, we'll have successive governments, uh, whether it be municipally, provincially, federally, they all campaign on very, very similar catchphrases and buzzwords and promises. It's accountability, transparency that's been far and wide used and abused by, I don't know, everybody for quite a long time. It's quite another to follow through with exactly that. Yeah, it is. And, you know, one of the things that we have been saying for quite some time, and and I know that uh, many people in the public have heard us say it, but it, 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 does, it certainly bears repeating, and that is that, you know, we have to ask ourselves the question, of why are nurses willing to go work in private for a private travel agency team in the same hospitals where we have our public nurses? Um, so why would they do that and, uh, and not stay in the public system? It's because the government has created this two-tier system with private and public health care workers, and that has to stop. We need to start paying the workers what they're worth. Pay the nurses and the healthcare workers who have carried us through the pandemic. They were critical and essential workers then, and they are now still the same workers. We need to pay them more than what they are being offered. And private agency nurses or private agencies that are just looking to make a buck, um, you know, they're looking to profit off our healthcare. Sure. And that is where government needs to start. How does how did government create private travel travel agency nurses? What does that mean? So the the, the private travel nurses, um, they, of course, they create this system. What? Um, Sorry, Patty. I'm getting some text messages come in. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So the the um, the travel nurses, uh, the government had put them into uh, work with private agencies who have 
they're paying them more money, of course. We know that the NDP had to uncover that some time ago. And it hasn't been a fear, you know, because they're offering them more benefits. And it hasn't been a fair, equitable system because a lot of these people that are working in private here now um, have come from the public system. Of course. Someone saw a business uh, opportunity and took it, right? I don't know if government created it, but a private business person said, hey, I'm going to be able to create a business model where I can pay you more, I can get you in the public system, although changes benefit packages and those types of things. But to me, once that horse got out of the barn. I don't know how we're even going to turn back the dial on this one. This is very much akin to toothpaste out of the tube because if they're there and the combat, the numbers of travel agencies, the nurses that are in positions and the amount of money that we're we're paying to them, it's going to be hard to turn that around. It really truly is. I do think there's some government responsibility here and I don't know how enforceable it would be. It requires a bit more of a legal examination. Is if you're working in the public sector now, you have to sign a non-compete. If I quit my job today I can't go work out another media outlet for 12 months. We've got to put something in place that protects the public sector here. Mm-hmm. If that's enforceable, if that's manageable, I'll leave that to the legal minds amongst us. But something has to give because if not, those travel agencies are making money and they're going to continue yeah. to poach uh, uh, professionals and that is bad for all hands. Now, it's look, if someone said to me, I'll let you be more flexible in your schedule and there'll be no mandatory overtime and I'll pay you double your colleagues making on 4 North B, I'm taking it. So I don't know how we're going to turn this around. I know, and, and, and that is the issue that, you know, a lot of people are talking to us about, right? So, obviously, you know, the question is, why can't government offer the same? New Brunswick did. No, so New Brunswick is in the same situation, and they have publicly set a date where they are phasing out the use of travel nurses. So we know it can be done. So the horse is out of the barn, but it can be put back. And, uh, you know, it's, it's these private health care agencies that can offer health care workers better, plus have profit margins worked in. Why is it? Why is it that the private health care agencies are offering better? I think some of it might have to do with the additional package uh, benefits that are associated with working in the public sector. I think that's part of it. It would be nice right. to see a full-on so breakdown. Okay, go right, ahead. exactly. So exactly my point. Why, so why is that, and why can government do exactly the same? And that is the point. Well, they that would mean that would mean government stripping away benefits. I'm not so sure Miss Coffee and her members would be too uh, high on that, you know, because it's one thing to get pay every second Friday that's much higher than the other nurse. Quite another to look down down the road at 65 or 60 or whatever you're going to retire and what that means. I think there's there's a larger public sector conversation and organized labor conversation there. But uh, yeah. final thoughts to you before I have to say goodbye, Kimberly. No, of course, we don't want to see anyone stripping their benefits, obviously. That's not, that's not what we're saying here. Um, but, no, I think that it's, uh, you know, we need to work with the healthcare workers to solve the issues. Obviously, they're the ones that are on the front lines. They're the ones that have the answers. They're the ones that know what needs to be done. Um, and we need to listen to them. We need to listen to, to them because they have the solutions. And, uh, and that's, the, you know, that's the answer right there. Um, make sure everyone goes in with, an, uh, you know, being able to be heard and uh, start paying them fairly. Um, and so hopefully we can retain the workers that we actually have right now and we don't lose any more that will go into uh, private, um, the private market or even leave the province. I appreciate the time, Kimberly. Good luck on the trail. All right. Thanks, Patty. You're have welcome. a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, let's take a break. Don't go away.
Uh, welcome back to the show. Dave, will I hold Rick till after the news? I don't want to bump him up against news. We only have like a minute and a half. So it's on these extremely cold days, and it's, I think, predictable. I knew I was going to get some of these types of emails this morning. It's about some of the transition pots of money out there to move away from heating your home with oil or stove oils, furnace oil, into like a central heat pump or using mini splits and all the rest. You know, do they work on days like today with the frigid temperatures we're experiencing? And my understanding is what the temperature today? The answer is yes. Maybe Maybe not as efficiently as it would yesterday, but they do indeed still work. Then the other issue is some of the uh, implications of home insurance, what have you. Number one, since some of these pots of subsidy money have been brought forward by the province and the federal government, there's no doubt and there's no coincidence that we have seen an increase in the price of a unit, right? So if you install a central heat pump three years ago at the cost, I'll just use round numbers, $7,500. And then you went to price one out, uh, all the moving parts of it today, and it's certainly much more than it, than it was then. Some of it's natural price increase, but some of it absolutely would be the companies, the businesses that are involved in this industry, they see the appetite, and just like everything else in Economics 101, supply, demand, driving price is part of it. I'm not saying that it's fair. I'm just saying that that's exactly what happens virtually all the time. Secondly, with all of the different pots of money, the only surefire way to know that you're being uh, accessing all the pots that you're eligible for, the businesses that sell and install these units, that's where you have to go to. Now, you can uh, haggle or bicker, bickle, bicker pardon me, with them regarding price, but they know the money. They know the programs. They know the policies. They know the right place to turn you because they want you to use them and do business with them, so they'll help you figure that out. Last one. Before you do anything of the sort, you absolutely have to call your insurance company. Your home insurance provider, ask them the questions. Tell them, here's what I currently have. They know because it's part of your policy. Here's what I'm considering doing. Because for many of these companies, they will not consider a central heat pump as a primary source of heat. So before you make the move, call the company. Navigate the different pots of money that's out there. Call your home insurance provider to make sure that what you're doing is not going to leave you left in a lurch without the kind of home insurance coverage that you need. Okay, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, Rick Farrell. He's uh, the Unifor Local 20 down at Marystown Marine Workers Federation. He's the president. Rick, after this, don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the president of Unifor Local 20, the Marine Workers Federation. Uh, that's Rick Farrell. That's Adam Marystown. Rick, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, uh, Patty, and a happy new year to you. The very same to you. Thank you, Rick. You're welcome. And a lighter note, uh, our Montreal Canadians aren't playing very well. Not particularly. They keep losing to the Senators. Like, what's going I on? I watch them take the Edmonton to overtime, beat the Colorado Avalanche, go to Ottawa and lose. Amazing. Uh, but the reason I'm calling this morning, Patty, of the meat and potatoes at this, uh, we're up here in Marystown. we got two uh, sites, uh, Cuban Offshore Services site in Marystown and Marystown Marabase, uh, the old former shipyard. Yeah. And we have had absolutely uh, little to no work, uh, first of all, for Cuban Offshore Services, Marystown, the loadout for the living quarters for the West White Rose Project way back in October of 2021. So we're 27 months and counting on that with nobody uh, from our union or anybody down there working at all. Here it is, a uh, turnkey operation, a state-of-the-art facility. And uh, the only sliver of hope we have, there were some uh, expressions of interest, I think, from Equinor and uh, the possible Bain and Ore project. So what is going on with Marbase? 
Because it was well, supposed to be the so-called cleaner fish hatchery, but I don't know if there's been anything done. They were talking about producing, what, three million lump fish every year or something. So has anything happened? Uh, no, unfortunately, besides it being a feed facility only for the past five years, uh, we signed an agreement back uh, for that in November of 2018, and uh, we hadn't had much success uh, in securing any work, and we've learned some more new information since then. Uh, the lumpfish uh, now are, uh, under the DFO are a species at risk act, so uh, this is a, uh, another blow to Marabase and to the workers up here, and it'll set the hatchery back probably years. And the feed contract uh, that Greg Newfoundland has uh, been given out uh, has been awarded now to a uh, place uh, in New Brunswick, Skittering. So uh, come June, uh, we probably won't even have that uh, little minimum amount of work where we uh, have uh, half a dozen people down there when uh, a boat comes in to load out. So you talk about expressions of interest from Equinor. What was that about? It's all just paid in order work? Uh, yes, that was uh, on your VOCM news there uh, last week one time. Uh, it was mentioned, came out of the first bit of news we heard about the, that project since uh, the announcement back in the three-year delay back in last May. Yeah, so we really don't know what the future holds. There went from taking all the air out of the room at the Energy NL conference to then coming back some months later saying they remain optimistic. They're just trying to reorganize the financials because the project had bloomed to some $16 billion, if I remember correctly. So it remains to be seen if that's ever going to happen. But certainly oil and gas watchers around here are cautiously optimistic. Uh, no doubt. Uh, and we understand, too, the key with the offshore services is a big uh large cooperation they're all over north america they have three thousand people now i understand working down in their uh, steel fabrication facility in ingleside texas and we're up here in marystown you know with a uh, lots of great workforce uh, people here from the bjorn peninsula from one corner to the other up the shore down the end of the peninsula and uh, no slivers of work at all yeah so it's kind of bleak out there how many members do you represent rick well, right now, uh, our seniority list is down to approximately 97 people uh, now, uh, Betty. 97 people all looking for work. But here's what the, some of the, what the future looks like. And I don't know how many of your members might be able to latch on here, but, you know, we're looking at the potential for Bay to Nord. We're looking at the potential of hydro development up on the Churchill River. We're looking at the potential for all these onshore wind projects. You know, the, I think there's five of them, including Pattern Energy out at the Port of Argentia. So there's a lot of potential good news down the road, but that doesn't pay the bills today. Well said. Looking for potential, yeah. Doesn't pay the bills, uh, doesn't pay the mortgages, doesn't get people home. Uh, you know, we have an aging workforce here at our facility. Our union members uh, were all up in ages, whatever, including myself. I was lucky enough uh, to get a bunch of hours at Mara Base, 250, and I had to go to the town of Marystown and take up the remaining hours just to qualify for an EI claim. I've been down there 31 years at the Cuban Offshore Services over the years. So we'll all cross our fingers, but you know, that's, the, that's the also the perfect storm, isn't it? You know, all this work that can be done and all these homes that we have to build, but if all of them happen, or even some of them happen at the same time, there's a real argument as to whether or not we have the skills trades to follow through to do the construction work. It's an amazing well, quandary. That's true. That's a good point again, but I think that uh, we have enough people gone away over the years that if we could supply a, a steady stream of work, say, for a five-year period or longer, you get lots of people to come back to the Bjorn Peninsula. You know, people from Terranceville, Grand Bank, uh, Lameline, St. Lawrence, Bjorn, Marystown, everybody. You know, young people that want to come back and make our uh, the Bjorn Peninsula uh, in Warburton area again. 
Absolutely right. And, you know, then all the concerns would say, for instance, the St. Lawrence Flores Power Mine, and there's just been a bunch of sidesteps and hiccups representing business opportunities on the Buren Peninsula. Anything else you'd like to say this morning, Rick? Uh, not much more than that, and that only that we hope that our government officials are listening and they can uh, chime in, whatever, federally, provincially, and see uh, what, you know, what they can do for the area. No, no industry is amazing. You know, we have retail and government services here in Marystown and nothing else. And it's been ongoing now for, like I said, five, two to five years. We've had little employment down there. It's not good enough, uh, Patty. Obviously not. I appreciate the time, Rick. Anything else this morning? Uh, no, that's it, I guess. So maybe we'll be calling you back in, in the future again, hopefully with more positive uh, news to uh, discuss. If not, uh, we'll come back and, and keep the people, the feet to the fire, and hopefully uh, we can uh, get some new employment uh, opportunities on the Bjorn Peninsula. Hope so. Thanks for the time, Rick. You're welcome, sir. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Rick Farrell, the president of Unifor Local 20, the Marine Workers Group based out of Marystown. And I mean, it really is quite something, you know. What was once a big load of industry happening on the Buren Peninsula, then, of course, not so much anymore. I'm sorry, Dave, you said something I didn't hear you. Okay, let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number one. Pat, you're on the air. Uh, hi, uh, Patty. Uh, my question for you is I'm just wondering, it gives a perfect time uh, for when it's called to address, to uh, get and see what people's opinion of the different uh, parties, PC, Liberal, etc., what they're going to be. Uh, people, you know, are they doing a good job, bad job? But how long after uh, someone dies do the government have before they have the common election? for that area? Hmm. I want to say 30 days before they call a date. Now, I think that date has to be inside. I think it's six months from the seat being vacant. But, of course, if we look at David Brazel, he left his seat at the end of last year, and the election is on January 29th. So I'm thinking 30 days is the number. Oh, uh, and then up to six months for it to, for it to be filled. I, I haven't looked at that in a while because now, of course, we're going to have another by-election in uh, uh, Fogo, Cape Friels with the passing of Minister Bragg. So I don't know off the top of my head. 30 came to mind right away, but I'll have to look it up. Thanks, Patty, because uh, it was just interesting. I said it gives the first real real test of, uh, you know, what people's confidence is. I'm not saying they're doing a good job. I'm not saying they're doing a bad job. Let the public decide that. Uh, I'm staying clear. But uh, it gives an opportunity, uh, one of the first real opportunities for to to see what people's opinion of what the Liberals doing uh, is. And uh, condolences all the same to Mr. Bragg. I mean, we criticized him a little bit when the fishery and all the debacle last year, but considering now that people know more of what he was going through at the time, you know, he he, he, done, he done as good as he could do, given the situation. So we'll, anyway, I'll move on to one other thing uh, for you before I finish, Patty. I, uh, there might be everybody that's into sports, especially football, but people should take advantage uh, of watching uh, the Super Bowls that are going on now, the AFC Championship and the uh, final Super Bowl, whoever makes it. 
because we have one we have one thing with Kansas Kansas City and Patrick Mahomes, and I mean they're getting enough attention with this uh, Taylor Swift and she's dating Kelsey. But beyond any of that, Patrick Mahomes has the opportunity if they make it to the Super Bowl and win. That would be for them four 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 trips to the Super Bowl in five years. They were defeated there a few years ago by Cincinnati in the AFC final. But we four Super Bowls in five years and a chance to win three. That's only been done by Brady. So if he's going to cement and people say he is as good or better by the time his career over than Brady, if he is going to get that legacy he has to do this. He has to win this year. Well, he's still and got a long career so, ahead of him. So, so there's a lot, a lot of pressure, and people don't realize there's a lot there for for the Kansas City right now. If they want to submit, you know, individual legacies and be declared a dynasty, win this year, and you're one of the best teams, one of the best players ever. You rank up there as one of the greats. Yeah, I, I, sometimes I think we might put just a little dollop of too much importance on winning Super Bowls. Like, for instance, Jim Kelly, right? He lost four straight Super Bowls. Hall of Famer. Then you look at Dan Marino, one of the best quarterbacks of all time. Never won a Super Bowl, period. So there's, you yeah, know. Yeah, Dan Marino, yeah. You know, so you can go down the list of guys who have made their yeah, balls you look, on you look, you, look, you, look, you look at Brett Favre, one of the best ever. I don't know how many Super Bowls he got, but it's, a, it's, less, it's less than three. I know that. It's only one, I believe. I think it's only one myself. But yeah, you look at the players that we back in the day. You look at you look at uh, the at uh, Eli and Peyton Manning. They only they only have two, and they're widespread apart the ones that they won. And they're they're amongst the top two or three greatest quarterbacks in in NFL history. So I I I I, I agree with the point you're making there. Anyway, I'll leave it at that. Will you, Patty? Have uh, yourself a good weekend. Same to you, Pat. Take care. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. And, you know, in the world of Super Bowls, so he mentions Brady. Brady won six with the Pats, one with Tampa Bay. Tom Brady has seven Super Bowls, more than any other team. Pittsburgh has six. The Patriots have six. Brady himself has seven. Amazing stuff. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Just before we get to line number two here, so listener Jim sent this along. It's an update on some of the investigations into the behavior of some Hockey Canada players. As per the Globe and Mail and Robin Doolittle, five members of the 2018 World Junior Hockey team have been told to surrender to London, Ontario police to face charges of sexual assault. This is a report, of course, in the Globe. It's cited unnamed source, but the Globe reports the players who have not yet been charged have been given a set period of time to present themselves at London police headquarters. So we all know what happened there there was a cleaning house at Hockey Canada the money they were using from registration fees for minor hockey associations around the country used as part of a fund to pay folks who were alleging sexual assault and so that includes five players from the 2018 world junior team have been told to surrender to the police in London Ontario unbelievable uh, line number two Gabriel you're on the air good morning Patty how are you oh, doing okay how about you I'm doing all right I'd uh like to take the opportunity to uh, do a bit of wrestling promoting. That's all right with you? Fire away. All right. There's two shows I'm going to talk about here. Uh, The first one is a two-night event in Port Union, February 17th and 18th, uh, called Inner City Wrestling Frost Fight. Um, 
we're going to have uh, some of the biggest stars around Newfoundland competing at this. Uh, guys like uh, Bulldog Brandon Hines, uh, Maverick Matt Wheeler, uh, Jeremiah Javen, uh, Deviant Drifter Axel Mason, Madman Tara Aziz, and a guy who made a return at the last Inner City Wrestling Show. Hasn't been seen in three years. His name is Fearless Brady Felix, one of the best in all Newfoundland. Um, we're, for that show, we're also going to have a, a former Newfoundland champion returning for that. No idea who it is. It's a mystery to me. Uh, the only way to find out is to buy the tickets for it. Um, yes? No, you go right ahead. So fill in the blanks. Who's that former champion? I didn't catch that part. Uh, I'm left in the dark as well on that one. That's a complete mystery. Only way to find out is to buy the tickets and uh, attend the show, yeah? Interesting marketing ploy because you would think attaching the name would be a better selling point than just finding out when you get to the event, but so be it. Okay. Yeah. Um, to get the tickets for this one, this first, uh, the first event, the Inner City Wrestling one, uh, you can get those at ticketscene.ca, uh, Eddie's Gas Bar, or Western Petroleum. And for this, we also have a special uh, bundle package for both nights. If you, it's going to be a little more pricey, but if you get that, you also get free access to a. Uh, glow party that's taking place at Mainlanders Pub in nearby Little Catalina. Could be a chance to meet some of the wrestlers, autographs, stuff like that, right? Fair enough. How's attendance been at some of these events? Because the last time we spoke, I think you were telling me that the attendance was really quite strong. How is it? Uh, it is quite strong. Um, now, with Port Union being in the line Center, it is a bit of a, a smaller venue, but the attendance is still pretty good. We get little over 100-ish people. Okay. Yep. Um, la- later on, though, um, if I can get off Inner City Wrestling, that's uh, that's happening February 17th and 18th. Uh, a week after that, um, February 23rd and 24th, uh, another Newfoundland promotion, uh, Atlantic Championship Wrestling, they're going to be... Uh, partnering uh, with the Newfoundland Rogues in the Mary Brown Center for a show or two. Cool. I mean, it's always good to come up with another partner in a bigger uh, bigger venue, so that's a good one. Yeah. Um, and this one's going to be really cool because uh, some of the, the wrestlers that's going to be taking part in this one, uh, if I can na- name drop a few, uh, we have guys like uh, Young Stallion Shannon Shaw, um, Heavenly Body, uh, Heavenly Body, Dick Daniels, uh, Hellraiser, Justin Locke, <laughs> Violent Vindication, Cameron Stevens, Manly William Marsh, and more. Uh, more importantly, um, not taking any importance away from them, but uh, making a return to Newfoundland after so many years uh, is a guy named uh, Dylan Davis. He, uh, Dylan Davis, was a guy uh, I first knew him in. 2008, and when he was known as uh, Hip Hop Dylan Davis, he uh, changed his name around a couple of times. But uh, he's still one of the probably one of the greatest performers in all of Newfoundland and Canada, as far as I'm concerned. All very good. How expensive is it to go to any of these events? 
Um, for the ICW event, uh, the advanced tickets, the bundle itself that includes that glow party I mentioned, uh, is going to be $30 for the two nights in the glow party. Um, otherwise, uh, tickets in advance are going to be $20 and 25 at the door. Uh, the ACW one, unfortunately, I am not sure on. I think that has something to do with the box office, I guess, at Mary Brown Center. I wasn't, uh, unfortunately, not told about that. If, no I, if I was to take if I was to take a guess, though, I'd say probably $20, I'd say. Fair enough. I'm sure the uh, different outfits and wrestlers appreciate you uh, putting some promotion out there for them. I, I appreciate your time this morning, Gabriel. Enjoy the events. You, uh, all right. You have a good day. You too, man. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. Okay, let's roll. Before the news, let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the PC member for Grand Falls, Windsor, Buckins. That's Chris Tibbs. Chris, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Doing okay. How about you? Oh, we got the, the wood stove is glowing red out here this morning. I can tell you that in Central. She's pretty cold. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, that way across the province. Patty, I just wanted to take a quick moment and reiterate that we're fighting out here right now for um, – we got the interchange out here in, in Grand Falls, Windsor, to plan on doing work with. Uh, but I've called on this before. We still have a divided highway here in Grand Falls, Windsor, um, that people, mainly people that, that don't know the area – are going down the wrong way. Uh, as you know, a few years ago, we had the fatality here. It was a horrific fatality. Uh, I see more coming, and it just it just makes me really upset that I've been asking the transportation minister on, you know, different transportation ministers over the years to take a look at the structures of the uh, the uh, clovers out here uh, because people are going down the wrong way, nor, uh, westbound and eastbound lane, and it's um, we're still seeing it. And some somebody else is going to get hurt or killed. I've asked the transportation minister to take a look at it sit down with his engineers, come up with something better, come up with more signage, something, and not one thing has been done about it. And to sit here, Patty, uh, you know, over the past couple of weeks and hear the the, uh, the liberal candidate, Fred Houghton, talk about one phone call and he can get roads done, he can get this done. Well, my question is, if the liberals can get these things done, why haven't it been done the past nine years? And I would like my uh, my meeting with the transportation minister. Well, the highway uh, setup has been the same for as long as I can remember, and nobody's done anything. Successive governments have has there ever been any, <clears throat> pardon me, road engineering work done to describe what it could look like to make it safer? Because it is a real mess. No, I, I've, I've sent I, I've sent the uh, some suggestions to the transportation minister, and one of which is is just the signage coming in uh, when you're coming from St. John's when you're when you're heading west and you're coming into Grand Falls, Windsor. Um, it, it, there, there, there's a there's a, a two arrows coming down from a green sign above your head. They're one of those green signs, and and one of them is is sort of li- listed off into the other lane before you hit that divided highway. And I've made that suggestion many times to to either take that sign out or or, or move it over, sort of thing. And I think that might be happening as well. But I've never seen any design, any plan. And uh, you know what? We're going to come up on another summer here, Patty, where we have so many um, tourists coming through that don't know the area very well. And you know what? That wall, in my opinion, should have never been put there in the first place, but it was. Uh, but unfortunately, now we're, we're left with this mess. And I fear that the summer, with more drivers on the road, we're going to see another accident or fatality. And once again, uh, you know, Fred's out on, on Bell Island telling them he can do it with one phone call. Well, I'm almost five years now asking for something to be done and nothing is done. So this partisan politics when it comes to road work has to end. 
It's always been the case, you know. I guess when people stand back and think about it, the possibility to get more work done in your voting district if you're a member of cabinet or a member of the governing party should is likely part and parcel of it, but it makes it absolutely terrible. All road work decisions should be done based on need, hierarchy of need, uh, even in the five-year plan, which is a good idea, including early tenders, which means we get more road work done. But the little bit of gray area in the five-year plan should only be for roads that are damaged inadvertently, like through storms, washouts, or what have you. The rest of it should be done straight up priority based on engineering decisions, not in Confederation building. Absolutely, Patty. I couldn't agree more. And you know what? doesn't matter which party is, 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 is in power, whenever it is. When they come to your door and they're making promises like this, like they're made, whether it be schools or road work, ask them. You, you've been here for nine years. Why hasn't it been done yet? And why is my vote contingent on whether you get work done for me, the taxpayer? should never be that way, Patty. We need to change it. That's why we need the, uh, the, uh, the reform done as well for, uh, for politics. Anyway, that's my say this morning, Patty. Everybody stay warm out there, and I appreciate your time. I appreciate yours. Thanks, Chris. So long. Bye-bye. Chris Tibbs is the PC member for Grand Falls, Windsor, Buckins. Sometimes I forget to add Buckins to that voting district. Okay, let's take a break for the news. Still plenty of time left for you right after this. Don't go away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Well, the Liberal member for Waterford Valley is also the Minister of Health Community Services. That's Tom Osborne. He joins us now this morning live. Good morning, Minister. You're on the air. Good morning. Uh, pleasure to be on your show. So, of course, we're going to react to some of the information that was garnered by the NDP through access to information. So the basics questions are, when we're talking about recruiting healthcare professionals, so we can talk about 400 nurses from India and 50 doctors in the come home a year incentive. The only real important number that tells the real tale or paints a clear picture is net gain. So why is that not approach that you would take here? It's one thing to say that we brought in 50 doctors, but how many have left in that same time frame? Well, we so we have taken that approach. For example, uh, registered nurses. Um, we know that uh, every April, every October, they they measure the number of vacancies. Uh, it's complex because there's a number of facilities uh, that use registered nurses throughout the province. So. Uh, if we look at October, which is the last measurement we had, October of 2023, there were 715 vacancies. You look at a year earlier, there were roughly 760 vacancies. So we are making a net gain. Um, you know, recruitment is challenging. There's a shortage of healthcare professionals globally. Certainly across the country, uh, there's a shortage of healthcare professionals. So we've reached out to India. We've reached out to Ireland, the UK. We've reached out to other. I know there's a recruitment mission uh, happening in the coming weeks in in Dubai, uh, where all of Atlantic Canada are going together uh, for this recruitment mission. But we are seeing a net gain now for registered nurses. We've finally gotten ahead of the curve. There's there's a number of reasons, and you know, I, I will send a huge bouquet to our registered nurses, for example, all of our healthcare professionals, many of them who were eligible, uh, ready, able to retire, stayed on during COVID because they were absolutely needed. So we did see a bit of a bump in, in retirements post-COVID because they were, you know, some of those, we know, they've told us they've stayed on because we desperately needed them. Um, we have the baby boom age, you know, the largest band of the population are now retiring. Uh, and, you know, rightfully so, they're eligible and ready to retire and want to enjoy their retirement. So we had, for a number of years, fewer people coming into uh, healthcare than we're leaving 
but finally, because of our recruitment efforts, we see a reduction in the number of vacancies with registered nurses. I also want to, in order to paint that uh, picture properly and appropriately, for every family care team we put in place, that's more positions. For you know the ambulatory care we're putting in place for other services, when we expand services, it's an increase in the number of positions. So if we're talking registered nurses, uh, every time we put a family care team in place, that's more positions that are there. So if, if you look at the, uh, you know, really crunch the numbers, the 715 that's there is based on more positions in the system as well. Uh, you know, so getting ahead of the curve, uh, we have more positions now than we did two years ago. Uh, we have fewer vacancies in October than we did a year ago. There were fewer in April than there were uh, in October of 22 by a smaller number, but we're starting to see a downward trend now. Uh, we had a meeting with the College of Physicians and Surgeons yesterday. Uh, they told us the number of applications that they're receiving, the number of licenses that they're providing is up this year over last year, and told us quite clearly our recruitment efforts are working. We put a recruitment office in the department, another in the health authority. Uh, we put a lot of focus into recruitment, knowing uh, that in order to get ahead of the challenge of, of having more people retire than coming into the system, and that's not just with healthcare. Whether it's an engineer, whether it's a carpenter, a plumber, there's a shortage across the board because of that population band in part. That's not the only reason, but that's part of the challenge we're facing. Baby boomers are retiring. The registered nurses vacancy now stands at 729, say the most accurate number. So there may indeed be a net gain, albeit marginal, I would suggest. When did travel agency nurses become a feature of healthcare? Because that, to me, would have been one of those immediate red flags that says, uh-oh, if there's a business model that allows for a registered nurse to be paid maybe double to work shoulder to shoulder with their colleagues on 4 North B, that's the beginning of a problem. That's going to be hard to put that bit of toothpaste back in that tube. So what's the strategy there? I've suggested things like maybe a non-compete for public sector employees. I have a non-compete. I can't go work at CBC if I quit today for another year. So is that something being considered? Because that's only going to grow. That's an attractive option. More flexible schedule, more money. Yep. So travel nursing has been around for decades. We've had travel nurses in northern communities across Canada for a number of decades because they were the toughest positions to fill. A little bit just different to, when we're talking about working at the health sciences right here. Yep, absolutely. But just as an example, but travel nursing, uh, the, the agencies, the businesses that have set up, you're absolutely right, saw an, uh, an opportunity where we had uh, you know, higher vacancies because more people leaving uh, healthcare across Canada, not just in this province, not just in Nova Scotia or in Ontario, but across Canada, there were more people leaving healthcare than there were coming in. Um, so it it is a, a a challenge across the country. So the travel agency set up to take advantage of that. Part of the challenge we have uh, non-compete in our contracts here. If you leave the health sciences, you can't go with a travel agency and go back to work at the health sciences. So we have them where, you know, they, they can't poach our workers to send them back to us. The problem is, though, if we stopped, as, you know, the, uh, Jim Din suggested yesterday, put an end date on these contracts, if we were the only province in Canada that got out of travel nursing, we would lose because there is a segment of the population who enjoy 
having the flexibility that travel nursing, that being able to travel, uh, that's part of the reason they're called travel nurses. Uh, they're able to travel to different locations, spend three months in a location, try somewhere new, go to another location for three months. They don't get paid, uh, or they get paid instead in lieu of benefits. So in lieu of pension and, and other benefits, they get a higher paycheck. Uh, so they, some individuals enjoy having the higher, more money in their pocket today and, and less worry about when they retire today. So there's a number of reasons people choose to be travel nurses. Um, when you look at the 715 vacancies as of October of 23, uh, for example, and we fully expect that number in April to be down again uh, based on what I'm hearing and what the health authority is telling me. But when you look at the number of vacancies, not all those uh, positions are vacant, but we don't count travel nurses. So many of the positions are actually filled by travel nurses, but because travel nurses are not our employees, we don't count them in the mix. Any consideration to change that non-compete? Because it's one thing to say you can go work for a travel agency, but you can't come back to us, versus you can't go work for them for 12 months, would, would really make it less attractive an option. Yes, so we've been meeting, and, and I've been leading the charge with my uh, provincial counterparts, the other uh, ministers across Canada. I've raised that at our meetings uh, a, a couple of times where we all need to have a strategy. So together, uh, I think ministers across the country have been looking at this, what is the strategy? Um, do we just simply say no more travel nursing? But we, we all need to be on the same page because if we stop doing it and Nova Scotia stops doing it, but the other eight provinces continue with travel nursing, We'll have nurses leaving our province to go work in the other eight. Sure. You and know, that's so where some federal guidance is required here. Because the bidding war is not helping any province. Not helping. It's For a race to the bottom. It's a race to the absolute bottom. I'd like to get through a couple of quick ones before we run out of time. We had a story last week. A caller called to tell, her that, tell us that her mother died while in a care home. The residents did not have any first aid training, basic CPR, and the paramedics, when they showed up, were dismayed, saying, had CPR been delivered, maybe the scenario would be different. I know that's maybe an occupational health and safety issue versus health community services, but should it not be mandatory, even though it's difficult to get a personal care attendant, should it not be mandatory to have simple, basic first aid? If I go to CNA, I can't graduate without it, but yet I can hire someone off the street without just the very basics of first aid. Should that change? Okay. I'm not entirely, I'm not familiar with the, the situation you're referring to, but we have been working with the personal care homes. Uh, we just reached an agreement with them just recently um, on, on uh, increasing not only the, the uh, subsidy that they're receiving per bed, uh, but also looking at the standards. And we've had discussions about the standards in personal care homes, and they've been working with us. They've been a willing partner in looking at increasing and improving the standards in personal care homes. So that is something that we've been focused on and working with the sector on. Where's the, what's the status of the review of personal care and long-term care facilities, whether it be staffing ratios, supervisor positions, uh, separating couples upon entry into the system? Where's the, where's that committee work? So that's exactly, uh, that review will help us with with the standards as well uh, and as I said I mean the personal care home sector are a willing partner uh, so when we receive the review it should uh, the recommendations from that we've asked and should make life better not only for the the staff um, 
of, of these facilities, but for residents, most importantly, for the residents of whether it's a long-term care or a personal care home. We're also in the review looking at the mix on you know uh, what what's the most appropriate model for a level of care for individuals coming out of an acute care bed uh, as an ALC patient, no longer needing to be in, in an acute care bed. Should they be going to a personal care home uh, to a long-term care home, for example. So we've asked for recommendations across the spectrum on, on the most appropriate level of care, the, the standards in personal care homes and long-term care homes, the rules that must be followed so that you, you have less incidents of, of uh, you know, violence against the resident, uh, for example, that we've seen in the past. Uh, so making sure that these homes are... Uh, comfortable and appropriate spaces for the residents and and uh, better working environments for the employees. Level of care can change quite drastically and quickly if we're separated as a couple have been together 50, 60, 70 years. So can you guarantee that that will change? Because in Nova Scotia, they did it through legislation. At that time, I think you said something along the lines of, I can't say I can guarantee something that we might not be able to accommodate. But if they can figure it out there, can't we figure it out here? Because that to me is one of the most sad issues regarding personal care and long-term care. So you know, I, I'm not sure we want to follow exactly Nova Scotia's model. Their model in, in keeping, you know, if if Mr. and Mrs. Daly uh, were separated because one of that couple had to go to a long-term care home, in Nova Scotia, keeping you together means that, you know, the, the spouse is in a facility close to that facility. We're looking at how we can actually keep you together in the same facility you know, maybe in the same room. Uh, in Nova Scotia, if they can keep you within a certain radius, one facility of another, they consider uh, you've been kept together. So we are looking, uh, and and the recommendations in this review on how we keep uh, truly keep couples together okay. in the same facility. I've, sometimes I conflate some air ambulance service talk with some Heart Force One. I think I'm accurate in saying in Heart Force One there's some concern about where that uh, the aircraft is going to be able to land. Was Stephenville carved out of Heart Force One? No, absolutely not. Is uh, the air ambulance carved out of Stephenville? So, because uh, the, there's some concern there. I can't remember if it was air ambulance and or Heart Force One. Yeah. But I think it's air ambulance. Uh, so, in both cases, whether it's an air ambulance. We absolutely need to land in Stephenville if it's air ambulance. We need to be able to land in St. Anthony. Uh, so for air ambulance, we've identified St. John's and Goose Bay as the bases, but they will be landing in Deer Lake, Gander, St. Anthony, uh, you know, Lab West, Stephenville. They will need to land in these places. And in fact, we're going to have a larger reliance on air ambulance in the future, both fixed and rotary wing, so helicopter. Um, and these sites, not only Stephenville, but other sites in the province, if we have helicopter, we'll be looking at helicopter pads, for example, uh, so that we have greater access to some of the communities that don't have good access today. So Stephenville is absolutely going to have access to, to air ambulance. In terms of Heart Force One, we've indicated that the, the uh, base for Heart Force One will be Gander, uh, but, you know, uh, we will be going around the province in terms of Heart Force One. Right now, it's cardiac cath patients. We are looking at adding other disciplines to that once we have a predictable, reliable, scheduled service where we can work with other disciplines and say, how do we fill those seats? So if 
uh, at Stair Lake or if it's St. Anthony that we need to stop and pick somebody up or, or Stephenville uh, may be a, a location based on the discipline. If we can get somebody into tertiary care, uh, get them looked after and get them out the same day or the next day and back closer to their own community in a hospital in their own community. If Stephenville is that hospital, uh, there's no reason Air Ambulance or, or sorry, Heart Force One couldn't look at Stephenville. So nobody has carved them out. Help me understand the logistical difference between having Heart Force One, its hub being Gander, versus the Air Ambulance Hub of Happy Valley Goose Bay and in St. John's. Because just if you look at a map, it would seem to me that in Gander, for an air ambulance, you're much closer proximity to most of the province, and the end destination would be St. John's. So what's the logistical difference between Heart Force One and Air Ambulance to have two different hubs? So we brought in advisors uh, to look at designing air ambulance for us. And they've looked at, we had a HEMS advisor, which is uh, Rotary Wing. We had, uh, you know, advisors advising on fixed rotary wing, road ambulance, uh, fairness advisor, and a technical, you know, uh, the, the technical advisor. They've designed what this should look like. And based on population, so Heart Force One doesn't require the same medical flight crew as air ambulance. Based on the greater population being in the, the metro region and having greater access to individuals who would be medical flight specialists. That's part of, not the only reason, but part of the reason they've suggested St. John's and Goose Bay for uh, these sites. Um, we can have, uh, you know, air ambulance, uh, helicopter for example, air ambulance helicopter, there will be a helicopter based in Gander. Um, so we know that we, we've communicated that uh, with the, the, the mayor and through the media. So there will be a helicopter stationed in Gander because of its geographic uh, location. Uh, but because of the, the, the population of medical professionals uh, and easy access to medical professionals, uh, St. John's, again, just one of the reasons that St. John's was chosen as the base uh, for air ambulance, but there will be a helicopter located and situated in Gander. I appreciate the pop-in today, but let's make a deal here on the air. I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I will. So I want to talk about procurement because, you know, whether it be, I know it's not your ballywick to talk about the Comfort Inn, but that's paying full rack rate for full 100% occupancy over the course of three years, a real boon for private sector. Same thing with leasing out a building at the Costco building, which was for sale as recently as 12 months ago, and yet it's now going to be a healthy lease payment going to that big capital investment group. So hopefully you can commit to, maybe let's say Friday, I want to talk procurement because between 811 and Teladoc and importantly the Compass Group, maybe an opportunity for you to get some information together so we can have a deep dive into the Compass Group, who they are, their reputation, some of the scandals they've been involved with, and why so many millions and hundreds of millions of dollars are leaving the province in the hands of the Compass Group, when in fact that type of expertise, experience, and the ability to deliver those services is certainly not only available domestically, but I would suggest there's an opportunity business-wise, provincially. So can we commit to that? Yep, we can absolutely we'll have We'll dig in then. straight up, you know, because privatization has long been part of healthcare, where we talk about dentists and family doctors who are in essence their own private contractors, but I really want to dig into that one as deep as we possibly can. So I'll give you some time to get that information together and we'll set up a time with your office to do it on Friday. I'll go a step further. I'll have uh, Dave Diamond with me from the, the Health Authority as well so you get the full meal deal. That's what we need. Appreciate your time. Pleasure. As Tom Osborne, he's the Minister of Health and Community Services. Let's take our final break of the morning. Don't go away.
Uh, welcome back to the program. Out of the corner of my eye while we're speaking with Minister Osborne, I saw that a pharmacist had called in based on some of the issues regarding universal pharmacare and the point made earlier in the program, and hopefully he has time to join us tomorrow because that's an important conversation, is with the most recent court ruling, and the more you read it, the weirder and murkier it is because the judge is trying to have it both ways, but that's not the point. The point is whether or not this particular issue has change the tune of the NDP and at their caucus meetings about whether or not it's time to walk away from their supply and confidence agreement and just let the House of Commons proceed as usual, as more normal, and for non-confidence vote to be available, or are they going to stand firm and just absolutely push the pedal to ensure that what they've been asking for and what it looks like the Liberals have tiptoed around for quite a long time is whether or not we're going to see a universal pharmacare bill tabled. There's rumbles and rumors that it will happen this March, but that was the point being made, and so I'm interested to hear from a pharmacist working in the field, and did he say he can make time for us tomorrow, Dave? Uh, terrific. So we'll have that conversation tomorrow morning. All right, good show today. Big thanks to all hands who support the program. All the callers, listeners, emailers, and tweeters, you're all right. We will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.